Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. everybody welcome to another episode of true crime and cocktails we're so glad you're here as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-hostess with the most s christy oxborough how you doing i couldn't be more excited because this is as close to halloween as we're gonna get until we're officially close to halloween (laughs) (laughs) this is as close to halloween as our show gets yeah for this year so we're you know Wearing our wearing our ghosts, we and are we're, we're ready to be fully immersed in the spirit. And as much as I love Halloween, um, when Halloween's over, that means it's basically Christmas. <laughs> Get so, on the Christmas yeah. train. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm happy to be fully immersed in the spirit. Yes, I am not happy for the the spirit to be fully immersed in me. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, I get that. I get yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, um the one thing I just want to just get out of the out of the gate, out of the hopper yeah. is if you're watching this episode, then you'll notice that we've got some brand new <laughs> giant headphones on our heads. Yeah. Uh this was a gift from me to us for our 1 year anniversary. And I inexplicably decided to order myself a pair in white. <laughs> I love white in general, but mm-hmm. these are so white and so large that I'm realizing I'm going to have like a tomato sauce stain on these or, or you know, peanut butter, like something. There's going to be Easily. a food stain on these. Easily so a fast. marinara. Yeah. A marinara, right. a sweet and sour, something yeah. smeared. Um, that's for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing I just wanted to add was I decided to look into them, into some cans as I think they call it in the biz, Ooh. Uh, some cans. And so I was looking up, um, you know, what are the best 
headphones for podcast recording. And because I'm also, as some people may or may not know, partially deaf in one ear, that's not a bit. I lost a significant amount of hearing in one of my ears due to an illness, due to an illness. So keep yourselves healthy because there can be lifelong repercussions. Um, this is long before COVID. Um, but anyway, uh, and so I found these. And so I was Googling because we're researchers. I want to make course. sure before I, you know, invest the money in the, in the, in the gifts that I buy, buy the right thing. And the first thing that comes up is a video that you may have seen. And it's of Hugh Jackman doing ADR on one of, on the Wolverine movie or, or some movie where he's playing Wolverine. And it's the clip where he's like full out running in the vocal booth and like doing all the things, which by the way, when I'm doing voice work, I do the same thing. I get very physical. But anyway, it's a clip that went viral because it was like Hugh Jackman's commitment to his performance. And anyway, he was wearing these same <laughs> headphones. And so I texted Christy and was like, if they're good enough for you, they're good enough for us. So we'll see. What I'm learning um, is that be- yours are... Very white. I think yes. my descriptive word the first time you showed me was stark. Yes. Um, mine are just a basic black, but I'm learning, even in the world of headphones, black is very slimming. So my head looks very large and like one with the headphones. You have the tiniest, cutest face in the world and the most giant headphones. But I know they're the same size. Yeah, they're the same size. Yeah, and I'm like, how is that possible? Yours looks so much bigger, so it I makes think your yours... face look smaller. Mine, oh yeah, mine. I just well, they blend more. Yours yes. just look. Yours don't look. Uh, yours look just like a reasonable size. <laughs> mine look like I I'm a child who's found <laughs> their their you know father's headphones from the 1970s and put them on. Yeah, I have yeah. a photo of each of my kids. As babies wearing big headphones because it's funny. Well. And now I can screenshot this and have my girl in there as well. <laughs> yep. Add it, to the, add it to the lot. Add it yep. to the bunch. Yeah. Um, but yes, we are. it is exciting. Halloween is fast approaching. Yeah. Yeah. This I, episode comes out, oh, we will have already done the brunch at this, yes. at this point. Yes. So I guess we can reveal it. We can say it now, even though we haven't done it yet. <laughs> Which is weird to be like, so there's this time we did this, but not yet. Yes. But you're right, because I put on there somewhere. Yeah. The 26th. So yeah, because we do the brunch this weekend. The 23rd. Yeah. So for those who don't know, we're over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Cocktails, And we offer lots of bonus content, bonus episodes, Q&As, polls to determine future episode topics. But the live Q&As we do, we call them our boozy brunch with your besties. We do them once a month. They're over three hours long. They get sloppy. And we decided that for this month, in honor of Halloween, Mm -hmm. we were going to do it a week early, because it's usually the last weekend, but we were like, that might be stressful for people with Halloween plans. So on the 23rd, we were like, let's do a dress-up thing, and we'll surprise the listeners with what we're dressing up as. Yeah. (laughs) So for anyone who's listened to the show... If you've listened to early episodes, very early episodes of this show, you'll know that Christy has made uh, made it very clear, excuse me, Blanche, has made it very clear that one of the gentlemen on her list is Mr. Jonathan Frakes. He is. Also known as uh, Riker, or number one, 
on Star yeah. Trek The Next Generation. Correct. Yeah. So we went on a whole, you know, off the rails side note about Jonathan Frakes early on yeah. in an episode of this show. And then we talked about it in a bonus episode on Patreon, and I revealed that I only recently realized that as a child, I also had a crush on yeah. a Star Trek Next Generation character, but that character for me <laughs> was Data, the android, which yep. speaks so deeply to uh, my choices in life with the opposite gender. So I, um, anywho, we started talking about it and we were like, we have to dress up as as Riker and Data. And so yeah. as of now, we have we have ordered the costumes. Christy's got a full beard. <laughs> I have a, a light to white face paint. Um, and that's going to be the reveal uh, is us in these costumes. Now, yeah. I think the reveal is hilarious enough on its own. Yeah. But what makes me laugh uncontrollably when I think about it <laughs> is that we'll then have to sit in them for three hours. <laughs> you oh, yeah. in a full glued-on beard. <laughs> like, I can't. It's, the image of it just oh. <laughs> slays me. It's so funny. It's. I envision that beard is going to slowly start to peel because of the sweat, because it's going to get hot. Because, yep. of course, those coats are no laughing matter like that's a lot <laughs> and so my goal is to enter the room at some point probably after a bathroom break because these things go so long we end up doing bathroom breaks but my goal is to enter the room and swing a leg over a chair like he would but I'm like ah that means they're gonna see my legs so I gotta make sure I have pants that go with it so I'm like I've got black yoga pants somewhere but then I was like but do I and so I'm like well, I have those black pants with the wine glasses on them. <laughs> Which feels, what again... Would, what would Riker do on a day off? And the answer is business up top, waist down, down bedtime. Yeah. Yes. I truly feel, oh, he'd wear an open robe all the time. We know it. But the red in his shirt would match the red in those wine glasses on those pants. It's going to look yeah. glorious. I think I need to. I mean, it's also going to be like, oh, it's it's going to be <laughs> so hot. I'm yeah. going to have to turn the air conditioning on, which is silly because it's going to be freezing outside. But it's just going to have to happen. I don't even know officially when we were both like, oh, we have to, right? I mean, and that's the joke after that. That's costume one of two. Yes, there is another costume that is a surprise that Which, we are doing for one another. And it won't have come out yet. No. So we be, can't talk about that. No. Well, plus we have to... We haven't done it yet, so we, have to we, do it we don't person, know. Or via Zoom. We have, to, we have to let each other reveal first. Yes. And so then, we have each also planned a surprise Halloween costume for the other person. So yeah. I look forward to it. I really do. But the other dream that I have, and, and everyone's going to need to keep an eye out for this, is that we do a, a compilation video of us revealing ourselves as Riker and Data set to the song Amazed by Lone Star, which if you're not familiar with, it's probably because you're younger than us. But the song goes, baby, when I rise, meet. Yeah. This feeling inside me. It's yeah. from like the early 2000s country song. I'm not yeah. normally into country music, but there's just something about the idea 
<laughs> of the two of us mm-hmm. as the two of them with that song that, yeah. again, I can be alone doing the dishes in my home and just start to laugh uncontrollably. So I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Oh, I can't wait to give this gift to ourselves. I yes. can't wait to give this gift to the people because yes. the idea of me just in a full... <laughs> Mm-hmm. in a full sweat because not only am i covering my almost my whole face with this giant beard i also have a wig i have to put on mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. i haven't done yet um because i i'm it's gonna have to be styled so i should put it on early to make sure because that's the joke we both ordered our pieces separately because it was cheaper for her to have hers go to the states and mine to come to canada uh and she commented to me, I couldn't really find a wig. I had to just get this other one. And I was like, ah, well, my costume or my wig is meant to be Fred Flintstone. And she was like, same. We bought, <laughs> we we bought, bought the, the same, same wig. wig. And I love yeah. that now is my moment in time. If I find a pen, I'm going to write down, <laughs> I need to go hang that coat up when I'm done because it'll be wrinkled. What was I thinking? Oh, mine went up the day it arrived. I bet. <laughs> It's right beside your pink coat. I bet. Well, that feels right. Yep. Oh, what a... You're building your own memory scrapbook out of clothes. And I'm living in it, which is nice. That's... Oh. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe, but there also was an old woman who lived in <laughs> she and her best friend's clothes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it feels right. Like, if anyone spends, like, five minutes with us... Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, that checks. Yeah. But like a wig is already going to be hot. Yep. And then you add in that beard, which I also have to test to see, like, getting getting it attached to my face. I'm going to have to start the minute I get up and then just spend the day in that (laughs) wig, which is going to freak out my youngest son because he almost did not walk in the door. One day when I had put on makeup because we recorded something. I think it was when we did uh, True Crime Daily. And <laughs> I had like, you could tell I had eye makeup on. And he walked and he went, what happened to your eyes? And I was like, oh, it's it's just makeup. And he was like, nah, nope, nope. Like you could feel it. He was like, don't care for it. Nope, ate that. So he, what's he going to do? Mama's got a beard. Well... <laughs> Well, I can't wait to find out. Yeah, there's going to be, oh, God, that day's just a write-off in general. (laughs) I'm accomplishing nothing else that day. I'm preparing for the brunch, having the brunch, and then recuperating from the brunch. (laughs) I always block those days out that it's like, oh, I've got a brunch. The day is done. Like there's nothing else I can accomplish those days. Uh, It's just impossible. Um, It should also be noted that obviously this is going to air October 26th, which means that the Halloween merch is only available for another few days. Uh, It is only available to November 1st. And then on November 1st, that's when I'm rolling out some very exciting items, including a whole line of hats, Thank you. You're welcome. And I'm going to put some Christmas items up there because we've all heard the lore. The supply chain is all screwed up. It's taking forever to get things. So I'm going to put things up there early so people got lots of time. 
uh, because I don't want people ordering late and then it being late if you've got, you know, a want for, for a holiday gift. There's also a sticker pack coming. Of course there is. It's a stocking is. stuffer. Maybe some Christmas socks. It's a lot. There's a lot of new items. There's a new Christmas blanket, a Christmas sweatshirt, Christmas t-shirt. Um, so get ready. TrueCrewMerch.com. I'm very excited. Again, it's a passion of mine. I didn't know I had until earlier this year. So there you go. Oh, and the one thing I will tease, because I've got it right here in hands in my within arm's reach, of course, is the psychologist hat. I mention it so often on this show, so I've had them made. It says psychologist on the front of the baseball cap, and on the back it says true crime and cocktails. So that's a special item. Well, and how are you going to get it on now over these? Well, you know, that was the thing. I was going to leave it. <laughs> I was going to leave it here and then actually put on the psychologist hat anytime I referenced it, but now not over these chunky phones. Chunky phones. <laughs> I don't oh, know boy. if that's ever been what they're called, but it is now. It is now. It is now. Um, quick question before we get into things. What you drinking yeah. over there? Oh, I'm being basic. I'm just doing a water. Yeah. Just doing what I can <laughs> to get by. <laughs> you know? Two ladies, two gals getting by. Yeah. Um, I have done something inexplicable, which is a tangerine LaCroix and then a Diet Dr. Pepper and Jack Daniels. I don't know. I don't know. But this has got a zip to it that I, you know what? If you haven't been out on a date with Gentleman Jack in a while, let him take you for a spin. You know, I, I haven't, but I'm realizing now a week late. <laughs> Of course, sure. That I uh, planned to bring Brandy along with me on our anniversary lives. And I completely forgot because that day was back to back to back. And we had less than five minutes between everything. And uh, Brandy was forgotten. But Brandy will come back at some point. She will be back by the end of the year. Oh, gosh. And I can't wait. You know what's nice is that she is a guest star. So she comes in once in a while. We never forget about her. And when she comes back in, it's like the moment on the sitcom where, like, the door opens, it's her, and then everybody's like, ah! Well, we can't afford to have her every week. We can't. She's getting pricey. She is. She's She's getting pricey. The problem is she knows her own worth. Yeah, and it is, isn't it? Isn't it? That's that's more cookies than brandy, I think. But well, yeah. yeah. Well, brandy's is getting brandy's brandy's is getting pricey. Cookies is getting pricey, and apparently, I'm getting loopy. So there you go. <laughs> Whoo, boy. Um, of course, this episode we're talking about an OG unsolved mystery episode. We're talking about Cindy Song. This connects to Halloween because, of course, the case took place on Halloween at a Halloween party, which we thought was very thematic, and we thought it would be fun. To not only revisit uh, the origin of this podcast, which is Unsolved Mysteries, but we've never done one of the original Unsolved Mysteries from back in the day, correct? Yeah. All of the ones that we did were all of the new two seasons. Did they consider that two separate seasons? I think so. Yeah. I think so. On Netflix, yeah. uh, We did those ones, but we've never, I mean, obviously, we watched the original, but we never, we haven't dipped a toe back because- we tend to be more of the unsolved variety. 
Whereas a lot of those from then have since been solved. Yes. We aren't opposed to solved. We just tend to lean towards unsolved. But uh, it was going back, seeing the stack. It was (laughs) trying to think of something else that rhymes with that. But the point is, it was nice. It was familiar. Yes. Uh, The only thing, and I'm going to say it because it wrecked it for me and I'm wrecking it for everyone else. Good. Uh, It was the first moment that I realized he very obviously reads off a prompter that's placed not where it should be. (laughs) Uh, I never noticed as a kid. I haven't really looked at those uh, as an adult, but it was like he should be looking forward. But he was very obviously like a, mm-hmm. about a foot, two feet to the side. And it was like, oh, oh, Robert, no, I'm Robert, <laughs> Robert. Like it was, it was, yeah, it was off-putting at best. But I've missed his voice. I've missed his narrations. I've missed the over-the-top reenactments that might be my favorite. Like, yes. In this particular episode, because of course I could not stop myself and I had to watch the whole episode, even though they focus on three cases per episode. Right. Uh, whereas the new ones, you get one. One. And that's it. But this, I was like, why? Well, I, I guess I'm just locking it in and watching the whole thing. And I did. And there was a reenactment of a husband and wife having an argument in a truck. And uh, bless them, they did their best. But like, it was so bad. And like, it was, I shouldn't crack up watching this like, potentially violent thing happen because of performances. But what a gift that coming back in our lives. I very quickly am realizing that I have an opportunity right now to share something with you and the world that I don't think anybody knows, which is years ago, I was in one of those reenactment shows. Years and years ago. This is, I mean, (laughs) so long ago. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, wait for it. And I showed up. It was a very low budget situation up in Canada. Again, this was I was very early in my career, but I think I was far enough along in my career that I was like, what is this? And it wasn't until I kind of got there that I realized, oh wait, this isn't like a movie or a TV show. This is a reenactment show. What am I doing here? <laughs> and there was sure. no holding areas like uh, you know, sometimes on low budget stuff they don't have trailers. A, not a problem, but but there would usually be like a room with some chairs. Sure. For for the actress. Nope. Oh, no. There was nothing. And I don't even remember what this thing was called. Totally truthfully, I do not remember. And it doesn't matter because I'll get to that in a second. But it was a true crime story. And it was a horrific true crime story. I'll have to try and find out what, what the story was. Um but it was basically about like a like a gal who had been taken. And I'm sure people will start screaming as they're listening to this because you, you'll probably know it right away. But a girl who got taken by a couple and they basically like kept her in their house. Oh. And they put like her head in a locked box 
Like she, it was, it was, and the whole thing was just awful. And the young gal who was playing that part kind of seemed traumatized by the time I got to set because she was having to do all of these things that really happened to this girl and was having to get naked and all of those things to film this thing. And And she kind of like... At one point, took me took me aside and was kind of like, I don't know if I'm okay with this. And I was like, You need to you need to stop then. Like, do not worry about pissing these people off. Like, it is not worth it because again, who? What is this show? Like, we all kind of got brought here under what I felt was like weird circumstances. Anyway, long story short, I got cut out. I was not in the final thing, which is a blessing. <laughs> it is more than fine. Um, but they did not keep my part in there. I'll never forget they were going to put no makeup on me. I show up to set without makeup on, which is what you do, okay? Sure. They, you let the makeup artists do their thing. Yes. Um, and they were like, we, we're not going to put any on you. And I was like, hold on a second here. I was like, I am very comfortable with you putting virtually nothing on me. I'm very comfortable with that. You want me to look really, you know, done down, not a problem. I said, you can't put me on camera with no makeup on. I was like, that's crazy. Like, I have rosacea. Like, no. Like, <laughs> like it was just like, you can't. It wasn't about vanity. It was about like, why? Like, what are you trying? And they were like trying to make it so real. Anyway, <sighs> long story short, I apologize if I've offended anyone who was involved in that production. But what I'm going to say is, you didn't treat us well. And I had a terrible time. And I really felt for that girl. And I, I hope that she ended up having an okay uh, time after the fact because she did not seem, again, well oh. during that time there. Which, again, I, I mean, look, shooting anything, you know, that's of that nature, I can absolutely see you going too deep. I made a character choice once on an episode of Scare Tactics, which if you don't know, it was a prank show I did for you know, far too long. Um, I had a great time there. I had a wonderful time on that show, so no no disrespect to Scare Tactics, but uh, I made a character choice when I was playing like a villain character to like make my one eye kind of like constantly flutter. And when we were pranking a real person, like it, it it's like disarming to somebody because they're like, what's wrong with this person that their one eye is kind of like oddly fluttering. But when we would shoot that show, there's no stopping. You're in, you're pranking a per- real life person who's not in mm-hmm. on it. So not a normal show where you cut. So I ended up like fluttering my eye for like 35 minutes straight. And then by the time I was done, I started to feel like, <laughs> like I started to feel like, ah, I've gone too deep. Like I was like, I've connected too deeply to this mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. disturbed character. Um, and then, you know, we pranked more than one. We, you you know, potentially prank more than one person um, to get to see who the best kind of reaction was. And so sure. I ended up doing it, I think, three times. And by the end of the night, I was like, I can't. I got to I got to go watch something real fun and have a drink cuz I've gone too deep. So and that was just for an hour and a half. To to be shooting something for like a full week where you're basically having to reenact a horrific horrific um sex crime and and series of sex crimes. Oof. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love that it was true crime. Yes, and I love that I've forgotten about it completely, but it wasn't until you brought up reenactments that I Remember showing up to this show going, I'm on a reenactment show. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, again, huh. I, I, I'd i like to believe the Unsolved Mysteries people uh, treat 
their actors well. But I just, I'm not saying I could do it. I'm not saying I could do it better. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying there's a particular scene in a truck where the the wife screams in a way that was... I I burst out laughing and I don't feel like that's the tone they were going for. <laughs> Here's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Give you a chance. <laughs> Put you in. I don't... Dip a toe. Look, Dip coach, a toe. I don't know if I'm ready, but... I don't feel like I'd bring comedy to that. Like I don't think I don't think she meant to, but both yeah. of them were like, "Oh, stop it." Like mm-hmm. it was too much. Too much. Well, listen. Uh that's part of the charm though, now in retrospect, isn't it? Part of the unsolved mysteries charm. Yeah. I mean, I'm still trying to think of there was a particular episode that gave me nightmares. I'm trying to think if it was unsolved mysteries. Or like Rescue 911 or something. I don't remember. I just, I have the vivid memory of the reenactment that was done too well. And it upset me and it's caused me nightmares for 30 years. <laughs> was it about the boy who ran through the screen door, the glass door, and, and the glass broke and stuck in his heart? No. Oh, uh, that one gave me nightmares? <laughs> I bet. Uh, it was a teenage boy who was somewhere in like a downtown and he was offered a ride by someone with a van and he said yes and in the back of the van they took off his hoodie and strangled the kid with it and i was just like i oh and when you mentioned we're doing this show we're gonna do unsolved mysteries i was like we're not gonna find that episode again aren't we like i started freaking out and then i tried like googling it so I could find out where it was so I wouldn't come across it. But I've had no luck, so I don't know if that's something I watched or if that's something my brain created that I think I watched. And then my brain is just like, let's torture her again. Or is it it a memory that the Fae implanted? Oh, God. We can't go back down that road. Look, thank God... They did a switcheroo because who knows if you would have liked the original girl. I've been okay. I have accepted the idea that I have been replaced and I'm some otherworldly creature or something. Listen, if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to our episode from last Halloween, Twisted Tales. Christy gets into the whole thing and it is a wild story and I don't want to breathe life into it. You know what I mean? Sure. I love that in a year I've just... I've hit acceptance. I was freaked out before, but now I'm like, no, that makes sense. <laughs> and I've accepted it. And that's just where I'm at. Well, on that note, let's get into the case. We're, of course, talking about the Unsolved Mysteries episode and, of course, the case of Cindy Song. On October 31st, 2001, 21-year-old Cindy Song went to a Halloween party with her friends. Around 4 a.m., Cindy's friend Stacy dropped Cindy off at her apartment and drove home. It would be the last time that Cindy was ever seen. So what happened to Cindy Song? Did she even make it inside of her apartment? Did she suddenly decide to abandon her life and not look back? And how is she linked to a previously unknown serial killer? 
there is a serial killer that oh will boy. come up. Okay, well, and get he's into it. He's terrifying because most of his photos, he's smiling. Oh, I don't care for that. And I can't think about it, but I guess I should say alleged serial killer because he, okay. he thinks he's innocent. Got it. Oh, boy. So buckle up. We're in for a ride. Let's do it. Now, dear listeners, once again, we find ourselves looking into a case that has very little information attached to it. I mean, there is more for this case than there is for others that I've seen, but not a ton. And the fact that this ends up happening time and time again, especially in cases that involve people of color, it's just heartbreaking and enraging all at the same time. It's like when uh, the Gabby Petito case first came to light and suddenly her face and the fact that she was missing was everywhere. And I'll admit, I was drawn in by it. A woman and her boyfriend go on a cross-country trip and she goes missing and he returns home. The story just grabs your attention immediately. And while, of course, it goes without saying that Gabby's case deserves attention because no one deserves what happened to her, I believe Anyone who goes missing or ends up being murdered uh, should be given an intense amount of coverage. Before Gabby's body was found, there were so many cops out looking for her, while the mother of Jelani Day claims there was a single detective working her son's case. Jelani was a 25-year-old grad student in speech-language pathology at Illinois State University who was reported missing August 25th, 2021. Jelani's family last spoke with him on August 23rd, and at 7.20 a.m. on August 24th, Jelani was seen wearing a button-down shirt and black pants. According to his bank card, Jelani made a purchase at Starbucks before missing a meeting with a faculty member and then missing a class after that. At 9 a.m., surveillance cameras captured Jelani entering a nearby cannabis dispensary wearing shorts and a t-shirt. He did not respond to phone calls or texts, and not after not being able to be to reach Jelani for the day, he was reported missing the next day. On August 26, police located Jelani's car hidden in a wooded area in Peru, Illinois, with the clothing he was last seen wearing left inside. On September 4, 2021, while conducting a search of the area, investigators found an unidentified body just off the south bank of the Illinois River. Nineteen days later, the body was officially identified as Jelani Day. As of today, no one has been charged in connection with his death. Uh, a similar case is 24-year-old geologist Daniel Robinson. Daniel was last seen driving into the desert of Buckeye, Arizona on June 23, 2021. On July 19th, a rancher found Daniel's blue Jeep Renegade crashed into a ravine four miles, or 6.4 kilometers, from the site where Daniel was last seen. Daniel's wallet, phone, and keys were all found at the scene. Before the car was found, investigators conducted four ground searches and two aerial searches. After the car was found, they conducted two more ground searches on July 21st. The thing about the car is that Daniel's family hired an accident reconstructionist and private investigator who claimed the accident scene had been staged. 
The belief is that the airbags deployed and the ignition was turned over 46 more times. There was an additional 11 miles or 17 kilometers on the car that registered after the car had crashed. Interesting. I, of course, have no clue how someone can figure that out. (laughs) And honestly, I don't have the time to look further into it. But I find this all incredibly compelling. So how was the media not screaming about this case from day one? And then there's 30-year-old Lauren Cho, who was staying with her friends in the Yucca Valley, about 30 miles or 48 kilometers north of Palm Springs. According to Lauren's friends, on June 28, 2021, she was upset and presumably walked away from the resort, leaving all of her personal belongings behind. Lauren's ex-boyfriend reported her missing three hours after her disappearance, saying he believed she was suffering from mental distress. On July 24th, an aerial search was done near the residence, and on July 31st, detectives searched the home. The fact that they waited till July 31st when she went missing, June 28th? Uh, October 9th, investigators discovered human remains in the open desert in Yucca Valley. It could be weeks before an identity or a cause of death is revealed. Again, I say for for clarity... I think that Gabby Petito deserves the attention that she got. But I also think that Jelani Day, Daniel Robinson, and Lauren Cho deserved just as much attention. The FBI got involved in Gabby's disappearance after she had been missing for two days. I'm just saying, if they can't get this, give the same effort to every missing person, it's tire, time to hire some new agents. I get that resources can be tight, but these victims deserved more than they got. And the reason I keep comparing these cases to Gabby Petito is because almost anyone who consumes true crime media knows who Gabby is. But did you know between 2011 and 2020, 710 Indigenous women have gone missing in Wyoming, the same state where Gabby went missing? And 85% of those are juvenile, and 57% identify as female. According to Wyoming's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Task Force, only 30% of Indigenous homicide victims get newspaper coverage, compared to 51% of white homicide victims. The group who receives the least amount of newspaper media coverage is Indigenous female homicide victims, who get just 18% coverage. And this is why we do episodes like Ryan Singleton and Kiara Coles and today's episode, Cindy Song. And like I said, there isn't nearly as much information about Cindy out there as I'd like, but I've done my best to give you everything I could find with some side notes sprinkled in for good measure. Now, I am going to say her name incorrectly, and I greatly apologize. I'm going to say it to the best of my abilities. I believe it's Hyung Zhang Song, better known as Cindy, was born February 25th, 1980 in South Korea. In 1995, Cindy immigrated to the United States to live with her aunt and uncle in Springfield, Virginia, to further her schooling. She was described as spontaneous, bubbly, and happy. She was also known to be independent, hardworking, and responsible. It's been said that Cindy had good grades and she worked two part-time restaurant jobs. 
After graduating from high school, Cindy enrolled in Penn State University, where she majored in integrative arts. She was scheduled to graduate in May 2002. Lengthy Penn State side note. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is not specifically relevant to Cindy Song's case, but it has to do with the university she was attending, which means, of course, I looked into the university. So I came across this story while I was looking, and it's wild and sad. And I was like, if I'm feeling these things, well, I'm going to force the people to feel them with me. Yes. So on April 18th, 2018, the Pennsylvania State Senate unanimously passed a bill which would make hazing in fraternities a third-degree felony in cases of serious injury or death. The legislation was named for Timothy Piazza, a 19-year-old engineering student who died because of a hazing incident at Penn State. On February 2nd, 2017, Timothy took part in an event called The Gauntlet, in which pledges had to drink vodka, a beer, and then some wine. Again, I point out that this occurred in 2017, which is crazy since the fraternity was supposed to be alcohol-free after a suspension in 2009. So Timothy gets incredibly intoxicated. He fell on the basement stairs of the house and was knocked unconscious. Surveillance cameras captured Timothy being carried to a couch where some of his frat brothers poured water on his face and slapped him in an attempt to wake him up. On February 3rd, around 3.30 a.m., Timothy attempted to stand up, but fell backward. He tried repeatedly to stand up until he was finally able to maintain his balance. He staggered to the lobby of the house, but fell again headfirst into an iron railing and landed on a stone floor. He got up and tried to reach the front door, but fell headfirst into it, knocking himself unconscious again. Timothy was carried upstairs, where an ambulance was finally called 12 hours after his initial fall. Timothy was transported to Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center due to the severity of his injuries. Timothy was rushed into surgery where it was discovered that he had a ruptured spleen and class 4 hemorrhagic shock. His brain had swollen to the point that roughly half of his skull had to be removed to relieve the pressure. Oh, my God. Timothy was pronounced dead February 4th, 2017. His blood alcohol content on the night of the hazing was estimated to be nearly 0.40. Oh, my God. Timothy's case resulted in one of the largest hazing prosecutions in U.S. history. On May 5th, 2017, following a comprehensive grand jury investigation, 18 members of the fraternity were charged in connection with Piazza's death. Eight were charged with involuntary manslaughter and the rest with other offenses, including hazing. On November 14th, 10 more members were charged in connection with Timothy's death after the FBI recovered video, which had been intentionally deleted, that showed Timothy being given at least 18 drinks in the span of 82 minutes. Oof. In addition to the fraternity brothers, the Beta Theta Pi fraternity itself was charged. Its Penn State's fraternity branch uh, was closed after its president ordered its ban, it being banned from the campus indefinitely. 
As of September 2017, the fraternity and its 18 members faced a combined total of more than 850 criminal charges. During the court proceedings, testimony revealed that the pledges were routinely forced to drink to extreme and potentially deadly levels, while brothers would physically and mentally abuse pledges using physical violence and sleep deprivation. More extreme behaviors, including sexual, physical, and emotional abuse, and the killing of small animals, were documented. The pledges were threatened if they told anyone of the activities, there would be consequences. As a result of this evidence, the grand jury released a scathing 236-page report regarding hazing and excessive alcohol consumption at Penn State fraternities. In response to the report's recommendations, the Timothy J. Piazza anti-hazing law was unanimously approved. In May 2018, a new deputy attorney took over the investigation and uncovered a massive cocaine ring being run by the Penn State Beta Theta Pi Executive Board, coded by accountants as a, quote, slush fund. Oh, yeah, well, slush Mm, for sure, yeah. uh And it goes beyond Penn State. The Beta Theta Pi fraternity has a disturbing history. In 2012, the Purdue University chapter was suspended for endangering pledges and providing alcohol to minors. In 2012, a lawsuit by a female student at the Wesleyan University accused the university's chapter of sexual assault and called its fraternity house a, quote, rape factory due to the predatory practices present and constant sexual assaults of young women visiting the house. In March 2013, the Carnegie Mellon University chapter was suspended following a police investigation of sexually explicit videos and photographs of female students circulating among the members. And it keeps going. Three chapters shut down following hazing allegations in 2014, with one more shut down or suspended in 2017, 2018, and 2019. At least 13 chapters of Beta Theta Pi were either shut down or suspended between 2010 and 2019, most of which were due to incidents of hazing. I then started to look into hazing as a whole in all universities and found that hazing has resulted in the deaths of 164 students in university throughout the United States, including 71 since 2000, which, as a mother of a child potentially going to university in the next few years, I find this horrifying. Uh, And that's just the cases that were actually reported as being linked to hazing. Of those 71 deaths, 27 of them were alcohol intoxication. And because I know that people want to know the outcome of Timothy's court case, out-of-court settlements were reached with 25 of the 42 defendants in the lawsuit. Four fraternity brothers were charged in connection with Timothy's death, most receiving simple probation, while one got one to two months in jail, plus some probation. Some have suggested that Cindy's case is being covered up by Penn State. I'm less convinced, as I don't think Penn State had anything to do with it. But since we're talking about negative things connected to Penn State, I'm sure it's a fine institution. It was also the home of former football coach Jerry Sandusky between 1969 and 2011. 
However, in 2011, after a two-year investigation, Sandusky was arrested and charged with 52 counts of sexual abuse of young boys from 1994 to 2009. Sandusky met with his victims through a non-profit charity that he founded to help underprivileged or at-risk youth. In June 2012, Sandusky was found guilty on 45 charges and sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison. And while this is less about the school and more about the area, in 1980, lawyer Ray Greikar moved to State College, Pennsylvania, where Penn State is located. In 1985, Ray was elected district attorney of Center County and was subsequently re-elected four more times before announcing he would not run in the 2005 campaign. Ray was reported missing on April 15, 2005, after he failed to return home from a road trip. His car was found in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, which is about 55 miles or 89 kilometers east of State College. His cell phone was found inside the car, and on July 30th, fishermen discovered Ray's laptop in a nearby river. The hard drive had been removed. Two months later, the hard drive was recovered 91 meters or 298 feet from the laptop's location. Ray Greikart has not been seen or heard from since. He was declared dead in July 2011. Early on, it was suggested Ray's disappearance might be linked to the unsolved death of Jonathan Luna, a assistant U.S. attorney who was stabbed 36 times with his own pocket knife and then drowned in a creek next to his car in Lancaster County in December 2003. Lancaster County is about 136 miles or 219 kilometers from Center County where Ray's car was found. Or maybe Ray had some enemies at work. After all, before his disappearance, Ray was involved in a police operation that busted a heroin dealing ring. The criminals involved were investigated for any links to Ray's disappearance, but none were found. But also in dealing with his job, Ray made a lot of enemies by declining to prosecute Jerry Sandusky for his alleged crimes, which has since been proven to be true. And thankfully, Sandusky has been charged. Uh, even Ray's own family came under suspicion as both his girlfriend and his stepdaughter were asked to take polygraphs by the police. Both passed. Oh, But again, I'm in no way suggesting that there is something wrong or negative about Penn State. I'm just pointing out a few things about the school that I discovered during my research. Again, I don't think Penn State had anything to do specifically with Cindy Song's disappearance. In the case of the two lawyers, I think their job played a factor in the disappearance, both of which are currently unsolved. And maybe that's a sign of the criminal element in the area. Again, I don't know. But again, when I learn something, I force y'all to learn it, too. I love it. Plus, if nothing else, that was a lot of true crime in a small span, and it's not stopping there. <laughs> I is- love it. And I also do, I do think, though, it speaks to, like, the, the area. I mean, that's a lot yeah. to have. And I'm sure, to your point, it's like... Are other schools that much better? Who knows? It's probably a lot of it is all of that, you know, those toxic traits that I think most schools have, but um, or could have rather. But I do think it sets the tone, certainly, for where she was going to school. (laughs) Yes. Plus, uh, I just 
was trying to cram as much true crime into this as I could. And I'm going to tell you, we're not stopping there. Oh, well, so I'm I'm buckled in. Thank God. Well, you I'm always in my do. car seat. <laughs> it does look like you've got airbags. I'm in my car seat and I'm ready to go for a ride. Oh, I can't wait. Well, thank God, because here we go. So back to Cindy. Cindy was a 21-year-old senior at Penn State, expecting to graduate in May 2002. On Wednesday, October 31st, 2001, 21-year-old Cindy and her friends, which included Stacy Paik and Lisa Kim, went out to celebrate Halloween. Cindy was dressed in a pink t-shirt, white tennis skirt, bunny ears, and a tail. She also had brown knee-high boots and a red hooded parka. The friends went to Players Nightclub, a nearby bar that was popular with college students. They drank and danced there until 2 a.m., then went to a friend's place to play video games. Stacy dropped Cindy off at her apartment on the 300 block of Clinton Avenue West at approximately 4 a.m., but left once Cindy headed toward her apartment. Stacy did not see Cindy enter her apartment. She had been drinking that evening, and her friends described her as mildly intoxicated. As a college student, Cindy had a busy class load as well as two part-time jobs, so it wasn't uncommon for her and her friends not to see each other for days at a time, especially since, unlike most of her friends, Cindy lived off campus. But her friends started to worry when Cindy didn't show up for one of her jobs, and when Cindy couldn't be reached by phone on the weekend, Cindy's friends contacted the police November 4th. On November 6th, police investigators searched Cindy's apartment. They found no signs of a struggle or forced entry. In the bathroom, they found the false eyelashes that Cindy allegedly wore on Halloween night, as well as the backpack that Cindy had been carrying that night and her cell phone. The bunny costume was not found at the apartment. Also missing, Cindy's keys and purse, including credit cards and driver's license. When they heard about Cindy's disappearance, Cindy's parents flew in from South Korea. Shortly after the initial police search, the family cleaned Cindy's apartment, which would have destroyed any potential evidence that would have been there. So in a case that seemed as though the victim simply vanished, the police did not have a lot to go on. Investigators first suggested that perhaps Cindy had just run off on her own, but Cindy's Friends and family were quick to disagree with that idea, saying Cindy would never up and leave with no warning. And while I'm not one to believe that theory, I just am saying this because it happens. For example, February 2002, Brenda Heist was last seen dropping off her children at school in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. When the children arrived home from school, their mother, mother wasn't there. And when she still hadn't arrived by 8 p.m., they called their father, who came home early from work and called the police. For months, investigators interviewed dozens of family members, co-workers, neighbors, to no avail. Four days after her disappearance, Brenda's car was found in a parking lot near a bus station in a nearby city. Brenda's ex-husband uh, became a suspect, but he was eventually cleared. Six years after Brenda went missing, the Lancaster County Major Crimes Unit was invited to conduct a cold case investigation. Brenda's family were interviewed. They all said the same thing. 
There is no way that Brenda would ever leave her children. They all believe that something truly terrible had happened to her. In 2010, Brenda's ex-husband filed a petition with the county court to have Brenda declared legally deceased. In May 2013, Brenda called the police to admit she was, in fact, still alive. At the time of her disappearance, Brenda was going through a divorce and was applying for housing assistance to get her own apartment. Unfortunately, Brenda's request was denied. After finding out the bad news, Brenda sat in a park crying when she was approached by two men and a woman who asked her what was wrong. She told them about the situation, so they invited her to hitchhike with them down to Florida. And in that moment, she decided, why the heck not? So she went to Florida, where she was without housing for two years. Then she spent the next seven years living in a camper with a man she had just met. They worked as day laborers, cleaning boats and doing other odd jobs. When that relationship ended, Brenda was back to living on the street for another two years. And then she reached out to the police after she got concerned that there might be a warrant out for her arrest. When Brenda was found, her daughter was 20 and a sophomore in college. Her son was a college graduate. Brenda did not immediately contact her children, and I honestly don't know if she has since. I'm just amazed that anyone could just up and abandon their entire life. But apparently it happens, which was my whole point of yeah, bringing it does that happen. Up. Yeah. Well, again, I don't believe that's what happened to Cindy Song, but for the sake of objectivity, that's where yeah. we're at. Uh, LaDonna Meredith, president and co-founder of Let's Bring Them Home, an organization whose mission it is to, quote, provide safety education for children and adults, as well as critical resources to families with missing loved ones, uh, said missing a missing person's case in which the adult chooses to leave is rare, saying, quote, it happens less than 5% of the time. Lead investigator Detective Brian Sprinkle, love your name, Brian, stated that Cindy's case was his biggest case at the time, explaining, quote, We get missing Penn State students all the time, but come Sunday night, they come back for a class on Monday morning. And while, of course, I didn't know Cindy personally, I'm quick to believe she didn't just suddenly take off without taking any of her belongings. Not to mention, Cindy had two tickets for a Britney Spears concert for November 8th, 2001, which were found in her apartment, along with a receipt for a computer she ordered, which was set to be delivered November 6th. And to me, that doesn't sound like someone who would just up and abandon her life willingly. And if you need further proof, there has not been any activity on Cindy's debit or credit cards since her disappearance. Then the police suggested maybe Cindy was in a fragile mental state and committed suicide. Cindy's friends said that a month before her disappearance, Cindy and her boyfriend had broken up. Cindy's family speculated that maybe Cindy was distraught enough she took her own life, but Cindy's friends were adamant that Cindy was getting over the breakup and she was not depressed about it. I have read that since the end of the relationship, Cindy had started therapy and was taking medication. I can't confirm if the therapy was specifically due to the breakup or if the timing was just coincidental, but all of Cindy's friends said she was in a positive emotional state on the night of Halloween. Police have also suggested that Cindy left her apartment with someone she knew and that they killed her and hid her body. Uh, 
She arrived at home at 4 a.m. and there were no outgoing or incoming calls and no texts from that point on. So if she did leave with somebody she knew, they would have had to show up at her apartment at four in the morning because they didn't call her and they didn't email her. And there's been no activity in Cindy's email since before her disappearance. Police then investigated the possibility that Cindy's disappearance was drug related. Diary entries written by Cindy claim that she and her friends had experimented with ecstasy and marijuana. So police wondered if Cindy was taken or killed in a drug deal gone wrong. But there was no evidence that Cindy used any sort of illegal substances on the night of her disappearance, so that theory was discarded. Then we have the police theory that I'm more likely to believe, the idea that Cindy might have left her apartment heading for a 24-hour supermarket. The theory goes that maybe Cindy returned to her apartment after Stacy dropped her off and then decided to head out to the market. It wasn't unusual for Cindy to make late-night runs to a nearby store. So maybe she gets home after a night of partying, decided she needed snacks, as some people, <laughs> me, are known to do, so she grabs her keys and wallet, heads to the store, not taking her cell phone because she doesn't plan to be gone long. And somewhere between her apartment and the store, Cindy was potentially abducted. No further, now further adding fuel to this theory was a witness who reported seeing a woman matching Cindy's description being forced into a car by an unidentified man in the Chinatown area in Philadelphia, which is about 192 miles or 308 kilometers away from Cindy's apartment. This witness claimed that the woman appeared to be crying and calling for help, but the man interrupted her and told the witness to get lost. And it occurred just days after Cindy's disappearance. The witness eventually contacted police and a sketch was made based on the witness's statements. The police have since stated that the witness was unreliable as their story changed several times and the police were unable to verify their statements. And while police have stated that this unidentified man is not a suspect in Cindy's case, they're still attempting to locate him for questioning. The thing about this witness for me, they claim they saw all of this go down just days after Cindy went missing. So we're talking early November 2001. What I want to know is how long did this supposed witness wait to come forward? Because the composite sketch that was made based on their statements was created February 7th, 2002. If you did in fact witness a potential abduction, why would you wait possibly months before coming forward? Because how much is that going to help at that point? Well, and if a woman is screaming for help and the man says to get lost, why didn't you at least call the police in the moment? Yeah. Yeah. Especially when his reaction is like, not a, she's fine, whatever. It was a go away. So... Yeah, I have a lot of questions there. Yeah. Uh, now, if Cindy was, in fact, abducted, and the, the suspect pool is almost endless, perhaps she was taken by someone who has a record and a history of similar behavior. But if you add in the perps who have never been caught before and the ones who hadn't committed a major crime before, it could be almost anyone. And while that feels incredibly hopeless, there is a particular scumbag that I'd like to talk about 
in relation to this case. But before I can get into this main suspect, I have to give a small side story that took place 140 miles or 217 kilometers from where Cindy was last seen. I'm not saying the cases are connected, but just run with me for a moment. Yes. June 23rd, 2001, 18-year-old Jennifer Barzalowski left her house in Edwardsville, Pennsylvania, and vanished. Jennifer was last seen at a bar with her sister's boyfriend, Stephen Martin, not the actor. (laughs) Shortly after Jennifer vanished, her friend Felicia Thomas told her mother she believed she knew what happened to Jennifer and who was responsible. On February 11th, 2004, 22-year-old Felicia went missing. In April 2010, Jennifer's skull was found about 12 miles or 20 kilometers west in Hunlock Township. As of October 2021, no other remains have been recovered, and Jennifer's cause of death is unknown. Both Jennifer and Felicia's cases remain unsolved. The obvious person of interest in both cases is Jennifer's sister's boyfriend, Stephen Martin, not the actor. (laughs) Although he was never charged in connection with either case. Stephen claims to be the last person to speak with Felicia, calling her at home at 11.30 p.m. the night of her disappearance, which is sketchy at best. He claims he called there because he was friends with Felicia's live-in boyfriend. But Felicia was dropped off at home around 11.30 p.m. by a co-worker. When she got inside, she supposedly woke her boyfriend and asked for a beer. He told her it was on his ATV outside. So Felicia went outside. Her boyfriend fell back asleep, woke up about an hour later. Felicia was gone. And somewhere in there, Stephen claims that he called her. And Stephen was also the last person to see Jennifer before she vanished. Felicia was convinced that Stephen had murdered Jennifer and buried her in his basement, which at the time was allegedly just a dirt floor. In the summer of 2001, about a month after Jennifer went missing, Stephen had a concrete floor put in. Years later, Jennifer's skull was found less than a mile from his house in a creek that runs along behind his house. It was also suggested that Stephen Martin was allegedly a pedophile who fondled girls between the age of 12 and 15 on several occasions between March 2001 and July 2003. I could not stress more clearly, not the actor. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Stephen uh, pleaded guilty to two counts of indecent assault, six counts of corruption of a minor, four counts of selling or furnishing liquor to a minor, two counts of possession of a controlled substance, along with several other related offenses. In 2005, Stephen was sentenced to 126 months in prison for vehicular homicide. Stephen was fleeing from police in December 2004 when he lost control of his vehicle and crashed into another vehicle, killing its occupant, a woman named Vera Simon. While serving time, Stephen Martin committed suicide in 2005. No! Police allegedly considered him to be person of interest in the disappearances of Felicia and Jennifer, although he was never charged with any crime in connection with either case. I, of course, 
have a lot of questions. Was it Stephen? Was it Felicia's boyfriend? Why haven't either of their bodies been found? And when, dear God, will women be just safe to exist? Oh, I... yeah. Felicia's family say she was very vocal about trying to find Jennifer. Is that what inevitably led to her own disappearance? And why am I bringing up these specific cases? Well, because Stephen Martin, who I am speculating had something to do with both, is associated with a man named Hugo Salinsky. And it is said that Felicia's live-in boyfriend, Ed Radowski, was not only a friend of Stephen Martin, but also of Hugo Salinsky. Ed had even taken Felicia to a party where Salinsky was on more than one occasion. It is rumored that a group of men that includes Selinsky are connected to numerous cases of missing girls because the group is allegedly known for making snuff films. Oh my god! Stephen Martin, not the actor, was allegedly seen burning over 20 bags of his, on his property before his death. His property has never been searched with cadaver dogs, and the rumor is his property was never searched at all because his father was a police officer. I said it during our Madeline McCann episode, and I'll say it again. Check under the house. I can't be more clear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean... That's wild. That's wild. If especially considering he had a dirt floor down there, he put in a cement floor. Uh-huh. The theory that somebody was peddling or believed was that she was buried down there. Here's my question. Yeah. What what does it hurt? Dig up the floor. Yeah. What does cement cost you? A couple hundred bucks? A couple hundred bucks of labor? Dig up the floor. See what you find. Yeah. Do the oh, you don't even want to dig it up. Do the ground penetrating radar. Do that whole thing. Yeah. It'll show you if there's anything that there's any reason to dig. But I guess if you have somebody who's in power, who's your father. I and I need to believe that with this being like early 2000s by now, his father has to be retired, right? And I love I mean, that I'm like, yeah, I guess there's the ground penetrating stuff, but I want it dug up. Like, I, I I want it to be a mess. Like, get in there, do what you need to do. This is why, this isn't the only reason, but this is why I didn't go to Europe and get that back home myself, because I would wreck the evidence. Yeah. Bring in cadaver dogs so you at least get an idea. If I mean, you live in that house, think about it. The fact, again, that there's three women that we know of that are loosely or directly connected to the person who lived in that house, three that we know of, and God knows how many more, what, how much more do you need? He's dead. What does it hurt? Like, a hundred percent. Wow. And I mean, it's only going to get worse when we get further into Hugo. Okay. Well, listen, let's take a quick break then. Get your drink steal yourself and we're going to be right back with more about the case of cindy song on this episode of true crime and cocktails
Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking about Cindy Song from the original Unsolved Mysteries series. Now, before the break, we were talking about Hugo Selinsky. And Christy said it wasn't going to get better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's something. So, I mean, we've heard worse. So don't worry. Oh, great. We Not in this episode. In other ones. <laughs> right. But like, yeah, it's we're, we're about to go on a real journey. Oh, boy. Okay. So if you thought the journey was was ending or taking a break. It took a brief pause and we're moving ahead again. All right. So Hugo Selinski, uh, he's potentially linked to Cindy Song, but he's also like a terrifying individual. Again, every photo, like you find photos of him in court and he's smiling. And I, I just, I'm, it's just unnerving. Uh, Mar- Hugo Marcus Selinski was born August 1st, 1973 in Sioux City, Iowa. Not much else is known about him personally, but I know that he has at least four sisters and two daughters, allegedly, all of which describe Selinski as, quote, an intelligent and caring man who's protective of his family. The two youngest sisters, who at the time of his arrest were both nurses uh, nursing students in their 20s said that Selinsky served as a father figure when he briefly cared for the girls over a decade prior when their father was ill. Although I don't know how much time he actually spent with them, uh, as he spent most of the 90s and early 2000s in prison with convictions for a 1994 bank robbery, a 2003 home invasion and robbery, and now murder. Oh my God. So 2003, I'm going to say a lot of names. We're going to go through a lot of dates. We're going to do our best to handhold and do this together. So June 2003, police informant Paul Weekly, who was facing a felony burglary charge at the time, claims that Selinsky and an accomplice, 37-year-old Michael Kurkowski, saw Cindy Song walking in her costume where they mistook her for a sex worker. 
Weekly claims they took Cindy to Selinsky's house in the Hunlock Creek, Pennsylvania, which is about 117 miles or 189 kilometers from where Cindy was last seen. Weekly claims that Cindy was imprisoned in a walk-in safe, assaulted numerous times over the course of a few days, and then just left to die. The informant even claims that Kurkowski kept the bunny ears from Cindy's costume as a souvenir. And for those who are curious, Michael Kurkowski was a pharmacist who had just pleaded guilty to running an illegal prescription drug ring of Oxycontin, which netted him roughly $800,000. Kurkowski was set to be sentenced just two weeks before he himself disappeared. Whoa! Weekly told police that Cindy's body was buried on Selinsky's property, along with the bodies of Michael Kurkowski and his girlfriend, 37-year-old Tammy Fassett, who were reported missing May 2002. He claims that Selinsky plotted to rob Kurkowski and that Weekly helped him in the crime and then helped him to bury the bodies. Weekly said Kurkowski was beaten with a rolling pin until he told them where to find the bags of money he had hidden. Kurkowski's girlfriend Tammy was killed simply because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. <sighs> Both victims had their eyes covered with duct tape and were strangled with plastic flex ties. Oh my god. So based on Weekly's tip about the bodies, police went to Selinsky's home at 479 Mount Olivet Road in Kingston Township on June 5th, 2003, and they started to dig in the area that Weekly had pointed out. Police didn't find one body. They found five. Oh my God! However, it was later discovered that Selinsky had moved onto that particular property a few months after Cindy went missing. So is it possible her body is buried at his previous house? Possibly. There is no word whether or not the police checked that location. But around this time, it was discovered that the informant had been extensively researching Cindy's case online. A search of Weekly's computer revealed that he had downloaded multiple articles about Cindy's disappearance, leading police to believe that Weekly may have been studying the details in order to provide false evidence in exchange for a lesser sentence. At the time, Weekly was already serving a life sentence and looking at the death penalty. But Weekly said Selinsky had murdered Kurkowski and Tammy and buried, th buried them on his property, and both of those bodies were located during the excavation at Selinsky's home. So why would Weekly tell the truth about those murders but lie about Cindy's song? Was it just to try and lessen his sentence, or is it possible that Weekly killed Cindy and was trying to frame Selinsky for it? Mm. After Weekly and Selinsky allegedly murdered Michael and Tammy, they went to Michael's father, who was safeguarding Michael's money, and said, Michael's alive, but he needed money to pay for a new defense team for these drug ring charges. Kurkowski's parents believed their son was on the run from these charges, gave Selinsky $60,000 in two installments. Selinsky then allegedly went back in the fall of 2002, asking for another $40,000 because his girlfriend needed money to buy a house. 
Zelensky had previously promised to let Michael Kurkowski Sr. speak with his son over the phone, but when Zelensky couldn't make the call happen, Kurkowski Sr. got suspicious and refused to give Zelensky more money. Zelensky pointed a gun at him and demanded the money, allegedly firing a single shot into the wall behind Kurkowski Sr. Zelensky was later charged with robbery and aggravated assault. On June 8, 2003, autopsies confirmed that the bodies found were those of Michael Kurkowski and Tammy Fassett. Five days later, authorities confirmed that the bone fragments belonging to three more people had been found. Two were identified as suspected drug dealers, 29-year-old Frank James and 22-year-old Ade Kyler. The third was never positively identified. Could that third unidentified body be Cindy? It's possible. But police have Cindy's parents' DNA for comparison, but maybe the body was so badly burned that even DNA couldn't help identify it? I don't know. Of the five bodies that were initially found on Selinsky's property, he was charged in 2006 for the deaths of Michael Kurkowski and Tammy Fassett. But regarding the deaths of James and Kyler... The jury was deadlocked over one count of first-degree murder, so the judge just declared a mistrial. Prosecutors accused Selinsky of luring James and Kyler to his home with the intention of stealing their money and drugs. The prosecution alleges that Selinsky shot both men, tossed their bodies into a fire pit, and burned the remains with the help of another man, Patrick Russen. Russen, who pleaded guilty to third-degree murder, was the prosecution's star witness against Selinsky and the only eyewitness to the alleged crimes. Selinsky's attorney painted him as a liar, out to frame the defendant. So October 6, 2003, Selinsky was formally charged with the murders of James and Kyler. Just days later, October 10, 2003, Selinsky and another inmate named Scott Bolton broke out of their cell window, which is on the seventh floor and considered to be the maximum security floor of the Luzerne County Prison. And if someone broke out, maybe it's not as maximum security as you think, <laughs> warden. Uh, the warden said the cells were, quote, supposed to be escape proof. Uh, but this breakout was something right out of a movie script. The inmates threw a mattress to the ground and scaled down a wall to the roof of another building, using ten bedsheets tied together. Selensky made it to the second roof safely. Bolton did not. Bolton, who was in prison for allegedly stealing ATVs, was captured on the second story after he injured his ankle, pelvis, and ribs in the fall. Selensky used the mattress to scale a ten-foot fence topped with razor wire, at the time of his escape, Selinsky had served seven years for a 1994 bank robbery. A police bloodhound picked up his scent a few blocks from the jail, using items from his prison cell. A huge manhunt involving county detectives, local police, and state police lasted for several days. Selensky surrendered from his Mount Olivet Road home October 13th. He pleaded guilty to the escape charges on September 16, 2010, and was sentenced to a maximum of three years and five months in prison. They just went, ah, basically time served. 
So his escape did nothing. Wow. And since he escaped from prison, you would think that meant that Selinsky was concerned about his upcoming trial. But prior to the trial, Selinsky said, quote, I'm looking forward to the trial. That's all there is to it. I'm innocent. And that's all there is to it. I wouldn't have missed this trial for anything. On November 6, 2003, Selensky's accomplice Rusin, Russin, uh, pleaded guilty to two counts of third-degree murder in the deaths of James and Kyler. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years. After a two-week trial in February 2006, Selensky is acquitted in the death of Kyler. A mistrial is declared when the jury is unable to reach a unanimous decision for the homicide of James. Selensky is convicted of abusing their corpses by setting them on fire. On May 19, 2006, Selensky and Weekly are charged in the deaths of Michael Kurkowski and Tammy Fassett. In January 2008, the U.S. Attorney's Office charges Weekly with conspiracy to engage in racketeering and is sentenced to life in federal prison. January 27, 2014, Selensky and a private investigator are charged with intimidating five witnesses in the homicide case. However, another judge dismissed those charges in June 2014. After years of delays, Selensky's trial officially started January 21, 2015. At the time, he was serving a 32- to 65-year sentence for a home invasion and robbery in January 2003. During the trial, Informant Weekly testified in great detail how he and Selensky planned to rob and murder Kurkowski, and that when they arrived at the house, they decided to add Kurkowski's girlfriend to their plan as she was unexpectedly at the house on May 3rd, 2002. Weekly even testified both men knew that Kurkowski had to leave home by 4 p.m. in order to pick up his two- and six-year-old sons from daycare. But the defense attorney noted that Weekly had been interviewed 17 times by investigators about the crime and that his story changed repeatedly. Weekly first lied about his involvement in the murders, blamed others who were not involved, and lied about where and when the bodies were buried. Weekly testified, quote, I told investigators a lot of lies at this point to isolate myself from the crimes, adding that he tried to, quote, fit my narrative around the facts that investigators provided him. But Weekly stated, quote, I'm here to do what's right. I've already received my punishment. Weekly pleaded guilty to the murders and is serving a life sentence in federal prison. But under a plea deal with prosecutors, his full cooperation could earn him the possibility of a reduced sentence. Under this deal, prosecutors were not able to pursue charges based on Weekly's previous burglary and child pornography arrests. Oh, God. In February 2015, Hugo Selinsky was convicted of, ten, out of eight out of ten counts, including two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Michael Kurkowski and Tammy Fassett, as well as robbery. In March 2015, Selinsky was sentenced to life in prison, plus a maximum of 120 years. <sighs> Selinsky, of course, claims he's innocent and hopes to appeal. I would just like an ounce of the confidence of a man who can still claim to be innocent after multiple bodies are found on his property. Yeah. 
And speaking of Selensky's property, after a full excavation of the property, a total of 12 bodies have been discovered. Holy shit! Weekly claims Selensky is responsible for the death of at least 16 people. And if that's true, that means there are more bodies yet to be discovered. So once again, here I am screaming at police <laughs> to excavate the previous address of an alleged murderer. Yes! <laughs> I didn't think that would become a regular part of our show, but congratulations, <laughs> it is. <laughs> As of now, Selinsky has only been charged with the murders of four of the 12 bodies. However, he was only convicted for the murder of two. Also, as of now, none of the bodies have been identified as Cindy Song. Investigators have been unable to prove Selinsky's involvement in Cindy's disappearance, but they have not ruled him out as a suspect. Despite the large volume of tips that police received, they never got far in their investigation. The police even called a psychic to help them find Cindy, but said the information given wasn't useful. The lead detective said, quote, she's given us a lot of information, but nothing that's been helpful at this time. But the detective believes that the visions, quote, may turn into something down the road. Cindy's family quickly formed an action group with Penn State students and various community groups, the Coalition for the Search for Cindy Song. On January 31, 2002, three months after Cindy's disappearance, the Coalition held a press conference in which they fiercely criticized the police department for not doing enough to solve the case. They compared the case to that of 13-year-old Alicia Kozekovich, who'd gone missing on New Year's Day, pointing out that over 50 FBI agents were tasked with finding the 13-year-old, while Cindy's case was initially manned by a single investigator, and only extended to a team of six state police after public pressure from Penn State's Black Caucus and the Korean Undergraduate Students Association. Other case side note. <laughs> you know I can't mention a name from a case and of leave course. it there. Of course. Alicia Kozekovich struck up a relationship with a boy her age online. Oh. She was 13 at the time. But the boy wasn't her age. In fact, he was 38-year-old Scott Tyree, who had been grooming Alicia for nearly a year. Tyree lured Alicia to a specific address in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he coerced her into a car and drove her to his home in Virginia. Alicia was freed three days later after an anonymous tip came in to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. In September 2003, Tyree was sentenced to 19 years and seven months in prison and was released in February 2019. But he violated his parole and went back to prison for another two years. In 2008, at the age of just 20, Alicia successfully lobbied for the passage of the Protect Our Children Act and has been lobbying the passage of Alicia's law in state legislatures. Due to a lack of dedicated federal resources, less than 2% of known child exploitation cases are being investigated. So Alicia's law provides a stream of state-specific funding to the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Forces. 
Between 2008 and 2016, Alicia's law has passed in 11 states. In 2018, it was reported that Alicia's law has assisted in the arrest of over 1,000 online predators in Wisconsin alone. Whoa, good for her. Right? Holy shit, yes. So... Cindy Song's family was upset that more than 50 FBI agents were involved in Alicia's case, while Cindy's only had a single investigator, so the family publicly claimed the police didn't do as much for Cindy because she wasn't white. Clearly insulted by the press conference, the police stopped contacting the family, a decision the lead investigator claimed was done, quote, for Cindy's sake in the case and not the family. He also added, quote, we pretty much cut them off. The police also blamed Cindy's family for destroying evidence by cleaning Cindy's apartment. Although, if they were concerned about that, then why would they give family access to a possible crime scene? In November 2001, police searched a wooded area near Penn State, but found no trace of Cindy Song. Cindy's case was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries on September 18th, 2002, which led to renewed public interest in the case and more unsubstantiated leads. And while the Ferguson Township Police Department has 21 binders filled with information about Cindy Song's life and disappearance, as of October 18th, 2021, there is no body, no physical evidence, no witnesses, and no active suspects. And I think we can all agree, Cindy Song deserved better. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is this. Yeah. Can we have the binders? <laughs> I want the binders can so Can we bad. have the binders? If they're not going to do it, can we have the binders? I want the binders. We'll give them back. Well, after we copy them, right? Yes, what I'm saying, like, <laughs> like we're we're not saying, like, you know, yeah, we're taking them forever. But let us if go they full. don't want to do it. This yeah. is my whole thing. Yeah, we know well enough the you know the true crime internet world can get shit done. Yeah, we we've seen it. You know, sometimes go awry, but we've seen it also like. Don't Fuck With Cats is a great example of that. Um, so if I, th this is the thing, and I get it. Listen, I get it that if there's, you know, a, a large amount of cases and only so many detectives that over time stuff gets pushed aside. But what I'm asking is this. Could there be some sort of organization that gets set up to train people, to vet people, so that people like you and I who are good people, who are smart people, who are people who have good intentions, could take some sort of course. I'm not joking about this. Could take some kind of course, and yeah. then when you pass, you're allowed to get a cold case and get the binders and see what you can do. I want to full Michelle McNamara this. That's I want to show up yes. with a dolly, pick up the 21 binders, go to a hotel room and eat candy in bed while I read the files. That's what I want. I just feel again like, doesn't it feel like there should be some, and I know that it's like, well, Lauren, what you're suggesting is 
is the FBI. Like what you're suggesting is creating an organization like the FBI or uh, – yeah, I get it. I get it. But you yeah. know what I'm saying, that it's like if there's cold cases that there just is no time for or they're not making the proper amount of time for – could there be something where the family signs up for it, like a private investigator? Could they hire an internet sleuth? This is what I'm saying. Uh, and I guess in it some ways sense. private investigators are internet sleuths in this day and age, but um, that's not necessarily what we're doing. I'm saying we'd like we'd like the binders and, you know, whatever we got to do. Yeah. All right. I've taken notes. Of course. Taking a lot of notes. But I also keep them in order now, which proves growth on my part. Um, first of all, kudos. I liked the beginning of this episode. I liked the call out that you did. I, I think that that was great, drawing attention to the fact that there's a lot of cases out there that don't get the attention. So when people reach out to us and ask us to cover things, we were getting a lot of people asking us to cover Jelani Day, for example. And yeah. here's the thing. If there's no, if the police aren't paying attention to it, and there's no information that they're releasing. There's there is unfortunately not enough for us to build an episode about. Um, yes, and that's you know I think Christy was so articulate and eloquent in her uh, opening in talking about all of that, which is again, if there's no newspaper coverage and there's no police coverage of these things, it makes it very difficult for any sort of podcast coverage because there's just nothing to report on. There's nothing to talk about other than just putting the names out there and saying. Here are the few pieces of information that we do have, which is kind of what we yeah. did with Kiara Coles and Ryan Singleton and now with Cindy Song, um, which I think is, you know, important and great. But it's important to remember, again, that it's not that we're ignoring that. It's that there's just nothing, which is the problem. Um, right. There needs to be I, more. I guarantee at this point the people have double-checked the time and heard me sign off and are like whoa it's early yeah and yes don't worry there's more oh yeah but we're that's who we are but the point is yeah there's not if there's not enough i mean we could make 20 minute episodes maybe but i feel like the people won't be happy with 20 minutes we've set the bar high is the point we've set the bar yeah. very we came high. in hot came in hot we came in hot, and that's where we are now, and it's just yeah. who we are. Um, but yes, yeah, so don't fret, people. We're, we'll fill some time. Don't you worry. But we're going to go through my notes first, and then we'll, you know, we'll talk about some other things. So, um, yeah. oh, and these, I mean, I loved your Penn State information. Again, I feel like there's just so much happening there and so much intrigue. Um, along with all of the terrible things. So yeah. the first thing that came to mind, I swear to you before you got there, when you said her friend Stacy dropped her off at home but didn't see her go into the apartment, the first thing that came into my mind was she got food. It was the first thing that entered my mind. Speaking as someone who, especially in my younger years, would have some very late nights partying, I remember one night specifically, I was living in Toronto on my own, I took a cab home, got into my apartment building, into my apartment, went back out, went downstairs, and walked to a grocery store that was not that far to get food. And it would have been around the same time. It was a 24-hour market that I was going to. Um, and, you know, thank God I was fine. 
Uh, it was only like a block and a half away. I felt very safe where I was living, et cetera. But that was the first thing that entered my mind was that I was like, she's gone to get food. Either she's ordered food and whoever came to her door was untoward. But then I was like, 2001, I don't know if they had the same kind of delivery places. I don't know if there was delivery places there. But it, but then when you said 24-hour market, I was like, I am on board. That just makes complete sense to me. And let's also remember for people or younger people who are going, but why wouldn't she take her, her cell phone? 2001 cell phones were not like our cell phones are now. Um, right. We had to pay a lot of the time by the text. You had to pay by the minute in a lot of plans. So I remember back around that time, it's like, if your phone was out of minutes, first of all, you just wouldn't use it or you were trying to save money, you wouldn't use it. Sure. Um, it's not like now where it's glued to all of us. It was really like that doesn't alarm me that she left the phone at home. I could completely see, especially if it was a really quick walk for her to get to that market, her going, oh, I'll just take this. I'll just take my wallet and my keys and I'll come right back. Uh, she probably did it a million times prior to that. She was probably used to making that late night walk. And right. felt safe in her neighborhood and probably didn't feel like there was any purpose in having her phone with her because, again, it was just a different relationship with cell phones. Like, we just don't have – we just – I didn't – you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's like also your your battery lived forever, which is also a funny thing. It's like you didn't have to ch – you charged your phone once a week. I mean, what a glorious time. Sure. Um, and uh, it just was not the same thing. Like, I would not necessarily have been carrying it every minute of every day like I would now. Obviously. Sure. So that, again, for people who were like, but why wouldn't she? Um, that makes sense to me. And I was going to say, I don't know that the eyelashes is a giveaway being in her house because you can get multi-packs of fake eyelashes. So yeah. I don't know if that proves anything. But is it possible to me, she came in, she dumped her backpack, she took off her eyelashes because the glue, for people who don't know or don't wear them, it can get itchy. And if you've worn them for like a good eight hours – that's the first thing I'm taking off too when I get home is I'm like, let's rip off these lashes. Sure. Um, so is it possible she comes in, dumps her backpack, dumps her foam, takes off her lashes and goes, I am starving. I am going to go get something to eat and then goes back out. I think that's possible. Oh, 100%. Because you also think, I, I do think she made it into that apartment because if something had happened, is it possible that her friend dr driving away would have missed it? Absolutely. But you would think that if she got grabbed or something like it would have happened so quickly between the car and the door that you would think that her friend could have heard something or it just seems to me that, again, building what it feels like was the timeline. I think she went inside and went back out. And again, speaking from first first hand experience, I've done that exact thing. I mean, it's chilling right. me now that it's like, oh, jeez, <laughs> maybe that wasn't the safest choice. Um, sure. But you know what I mean? Like, again, when I and I would have been, you know, roughly her age at the time thinking, oh, this is fine. It's it's just a block and a half away or however long for me it was, how long, however long it was for her. She probably felt like no big deal. I agree with you. I don't believe the suicidal thing. Um, ordering a new computer that's coming within a week, having Britney Spears tickets. These are not. Again, listen, nobody knows what anybody is going through. And oftentimes people will talk about um, people who do take their own lives uh, or die because of suicide, um, that sometimes there were no signs and that people did not sure. know what the person was struggling with. However, if we're just talking again, given what we know um, in terms of larger or or quite often people who are going through and planning 
uh, for something like that don't tend to be buying things like that for themselves or having those kinds of events and stuff like that. Now, I'm not saying, sure. again, that's across the board. It's not. But again, just trying to build what this potential timeline was and everything. I don't think so. Um, and again, you know, a month before her disappearance, the breakup. I understand that people are like, well, she was really going through it and mental issues and blah, blah, blah. But I I also just want to say very quickly, I hate how any time we talk about a female victim, it's like, well, she went through a breakup and she, you know, she was clearly going through some some mental mental health struggles. And it's like, hold on a second here. I'm not suggesting, first of all, there's no shame in going through mental health struggles at all. I, we've sure. both talked about our relationship with such things on this show. But I just don't like that that's an immediate go-to, that it's like, well, mm. she was a woman and she was going through mental health struggles because she broke up with her boyfriend or whatever. I'm like, let's pump, pump the brakes for a second here. We're finding out that she was going to therapy, that that she was on meds. Now, medication, sure, that can take time to get the dosages correct and people can go through a journey on on what that looks like. But those, again, those are behaviors for somebody who is seeking help, who is trying yeah. to, again, it doesn't add up to me as this is a person who is um, in a danger zone. Again, I preface all this for se- by saying it, sometimes it doesn't matter. And and people, again, we never know what's going on uh, inside of somebody. So I'm not trying to be insensitive at all to that. It's just, again, when we're trying to build a case with so little, you know, evidence and facts, trying to rule things out, again, it feels like, it's. is it possible? Of course. Does it feel like in this case, it's the case? I don't think so. Um, ecstasy and weed, I'm like, mm, those are party drugs. That's not, you know what I mean? If it was like she's been doing yeah. heroin or cocaine, okay, those are things that I might think differently, but experimenting with ecstasy and weed when you're in college, I'm I'm going to go ahead and say I don't think this is drug-related. It's just not. Sure. Not, <laughs> I think she's fine uh, with that. Um, that witness, the sketch being made months later, mm, like we said at the time, I don't know. I don't buy it. If you see a woman screaming and the man being aggressive, I get feeling like you don't feel like you can physically intervene for your own safety. Sure. I understand that. But why you would not call the police, take a photo, your cell phones at that time could still take photos, bad ones most of the time. Of oh, course. 2001? Yeah, I think some of them could. Really shitty photos, I think, at that time. Maybe not all the phones. I don't know. At that point, I probably had like a Nokia brick. I did too. Okay, so yeah, no, maybe they weren't taking – But but I mean, again – I was I was always carrying a digital camera at that time personally. But regardless, you can take a note on your phone of what the license plate is of that car and you can call 911. If you yes. see, if you see that. If you if there's no license plate, make and model, whatever, you call the police. I mean, I don't I, yeah, I don't buy that. Now, here's something I don't know if if you noticed this, but something I thought was chilling was the gal Felicia whose friend Jennifer had gone missing. And Felicia yes. was like, I'm on the case. Really was like, I want to get this, you know, solved, whatever. She had, yeah. was disappeared at, had disappeared at the time. Stephen Martin, of course, not the actor. Though <laughs> actor Steve Martin does have a connection to true crime through his new Hulu series, uh, Only Murders in the Building, which to anyone right. listening, for all of the people who ask us all the time if we've watched, we haven't. We don't have the time. 
Uh, wish we did. It looks like a romp. But when we say this, this show is a full-time job, it is. I don't do much pleasure viewing, and Christy, I know, is the same. Uh, but we look <laughs> forward to- Thank you for the term pleasure viewing. You're welcome. I hope to watch it by 2025. Okay. So, but not Steve Martin. Stephen Martin. Um, yes. He says he called her. I think it's very plausible he showed up at her house. He's sure. claiming that he, like, show me the receipts. Where are the phone logs? See, these are, again, why I want the binders for all of these cases. Like, is yes. there proof that he made the phone call? Was it from a I'm cell just, phone? Was it from a home phone? Because at that time, yes. a lot of people had home phones. It just seems odd to me that, you know, she comes home. And then also, why is the beer on the ATV outside? Is it to get cold? Why are you keeping it on an ATV? And then my next question was, so Penn State, I don't know a lot about the area. But we know that this is within 140 miles of Cindy's apartment, or that's where Jennifer vanished from. So I'm assuming that Felicia was somewhere in that area. So we're talking like right. within 200 miles. I don't know if it was a rural area. Again, go with me on this. ATVs, um, for those who maybe don't know, they're like a four-wheeler, right? Like a like a right. all-terrain vehicle. <laughs> I would call them a quad, a person. Yeah, that's what we call them in Canada. But down here, they call them ATVs for sure. But that's typically something that I feel like it's like you're living on a farm or with a lot of land if you've got an ATV. Uh, typically, again, don't come for me. I, I respect anyone who wants to do what they do with their ATVs. But then what stuck out to me was the guy that Hugo Selinski broke out of prison with was in there for selling stolen ATVs. Great call, yeah. What's with these people in the ATVs? Now, again, I don't know, and I would have to dig deeper about, like, where were they living at the time, etc. It could be a complete red herring and that it's there's no connection at all. But it just bumped me because is Penn State in the country? Like, in the, in the sticks? Like, is it... I didn't think so. I don't think so. Now, again, we will, as soon as this is done, we'll Google and we'll answer our own question. But Geography's um, our kryptonite. It's geography. We're, we're not great. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it just felt interesting to me. And again, it could mean absolutely nothing. But the fact that the last time Felicia was seen was her boyfriend saying, the beer's outside in the ATV. And then someone connected to all of this in the grander sense Broke mm -hmm. out of prison with a man who was in there for selling stolen ATVs. I mean, is it possible her boyfriend bought it from that guy? Is it, again, just proof that there's this bigger kind of, not that he was involved necessarily with any of the, the, the murders that have happened, but just that, again, all of these guys, including Felicia's boyfriend, are all kind of in this weird acquaintance group. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, it, and then yeah. to that question, too, with Felicia, was her boyfriend friends with Stephen Martin? Was he, like, stop digging around? Was he, like, you don't know who you're dealing with? Did he get angry? How much was he looked into? Because, again, it's just, look, I've had my fair share of gentleman partners in my life. Sure. Um, it's odd to me. And look, I know a lot of people will be saying, like, Lauren, that's sexist and all of the above. And I'm, I'm really not meaning to. But I don't know a lot of men who, if your girlfriend comes home from work late at night, they're like, go outside. <laughs> go outside sure. to get your beer. Like, 
I understand that he woke, she woke him up in the moment and maybe this was normal and maybe they did live in a rural area where it was not odd or whatever. But it's, I don't know, there's just something about that whole scenario that feels off to me. Right. It's, it's weird. There's something, there's a lot of things I don't like about it. Uh, Stephen Martin, not the actor. Thank you. Um, the fact that he openly admits to being the last person to see both of those girls. Uh, or to speak to, right? To speak yep. to Felicia? S- yeah. Uh, Stephen, his girlfriend, the fact that she was cool or didn't know that he was hanging out and going places with her sister, especially her younger sister. It's like, oh boy, I don't think so. Um, You used the term danger zone, and I almost quoted Top Gun. Yes. Uh, the idea of 2001 Britney. Oh, God, she was so happy then. Mm. Um, And uh, oh, you're just going for the hits at that point. Like, what a beautiful show that would have been yeah the point is um there is just something so weird about this whole thing nobody can convince me otherwise that stephen martin wasn't involved in both of those girls disappearances i yeah i have to agree and i also feel like when someone who is connected and in prison for things like vehicular manslaughter he's connected to potential other murders um, when someone like that kills themselves in prison, I always feel like that's a sign of something. You know what I mean? Like there's so often you'll hear about someone has child pornography found in their home and they kill themselves the next day. Mark Salling from the Glee right. Curse episode. You know what I mean? Like that is yeah. not an uncommon uh, thing that you'll hear about someone doing. So – to me, him com- committing suicide feels – it's not proof that he's done something, but it feels like a another giant red flag that there is something else that he knew that he was, you know, guilty of. Um, oh, absolutely. Now, the other thing I find very interesting, and I can't think about it too hard because it'll creep me out too much, but the fact that you mentioned that these guys, that Hugo Selinsky, Stephen Martin – not the actor, Ed Radaski, I think you said, the fact that they were potentially connected to an alleged snuff film ring and the fact that Stephen Stephen Martin's father was a police officer. And then the fact when we start to get into Selinsky and like some some of the things he was getting away with and judges dismissing things and when he got, Mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Look, pre-Gacy, Pre that episode, if you had told me snuff film ring, I would have been like, okay, we're talking conspiracy theories here, whatever. The shit that I read and the shit that I know after that re- researching that episode, yeah, I honestly, nothing would shock me. And the fact, again, that we know it is fact what was happening in the 70s with that whole situation um, and that there was an alleged snuff film element potentially be going on there as well and that it's never fully been uncovered. And the reason was is that the people involved were all super high-powered and, and you know, the guys saying, the guys involved, the kingpins of the whole thing 
were saying it would make people's heads spin if they knew the public officials, the governor, the, you know, the, the lawyers, the judges, the police, all these things. So that to me in that moment, that was when I, my like goosebumps went and my hair stood up because I was like, well, right there, it just feels like, you know, again, and we'll never know if that if that is the case, we'll never know because that shit is so buried, um, you know, and again, it just it just again, it bumped me. And when you mentioned that there was a few times that things had come up and like he got, you know, like he escaped from prison and then he didn't really get any more time added to his sentence and stuff like that. It's like, what is going on with that? And that's like, well, you don't know. I'm not a, I'm not saying that that judge is involved in the snuff film market. I'm not sure. saying that at all. It could be that somebody owes a favor to somebody and who knows that you know what I mean and somebody's getting bribed in some other way. I am not alleging sure. anything here. I'm just saying it's creepy and it reminds me of crooked cops and nothing scares me more as everybody mm. who listens to this show knows. The informant weekly and his story about potentially what happened to Cindy I love also that it's like, oh, he, you know, they they thought that she was, they inadvertently mistook her for a sex worker. So they took her home, kept her in a safe, sexually assaulted her multiple times, and then left her to die. It's like, mm-hmm. I like that they feel like, well, that's justified if she's a sex worker, which is disgusting. Right. Um, and that it felt necessary for him to even add that it's like, well, we mistook, she was mistaken for a sex worker. So that's why it happened. It's like, disgusting. Right disgusting um but again why why if all of these bodies have been found on his property why haven't they dug on his old property to your point these are the things that again make me go back to even if it's not snuff films what other underground thing are these people potentially involved in and then Mm -hmm. when it came out that weekly also has a connection to child pornography Again, then I just think back to the fucking Gacy episode, which will chill me to to the day I die. Um, But only because what I really learned was how pervasive it is and how these people will not stop even when they're behind bars and how it has gone on for decades and decades and decades and actually been happening. And it, 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 it happens. And it's horrifying to say but you know what i'm saying it's like again there's just nothing first of all there's nothing you could say that would shock me anymore because i'm dead inside now uh yeah. but also um just the scope of that shit and how it's kept quiet it's you know staggering yes um to your point, the one body that was unidentified, could it be Cindy? How badly burned was it? I don't know. Again, I we're, we're not pathologists. Um, but I am curious about that because often if a body is really badly burned, I know that they can use dental records. So I'm curious about did she not have dental records in America because she had only been in America for six years at this point? It's feasible she may not have seen a dentist. Believe me, I've gone for very long periods of time without seeing a dentist. So is it possible that those just don't exist. Um, sure. Can't you get the dental records from South Korea? I'm assuming they probably exist if, you know, uh, and th- those could be extradited. Again, give us the binders. Um, yes. For the love of God. Uh, but I also don't know, again, to your point, I don't know how badly the body would have to be burned so that no DNA could be recovered. But, or how damaged the, you know, is it feasible that, 
you could damage a body so badly that it's unidentifiable. I do think that is possible, but you'd have to be doing that deliberately. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like yes. if the other ones he had there were identifiable, why was that one given potentially special treatment um, and made unidentifiable? I, we don't know that answer. Um, oh, God. Yeah. Wanting a plea deal to get out of his child porn charges. Jesus Christ. This is the person we're trusting, I guess. Okay. Um. I think the big thing, too, is, is you know, at the end of the day, the fact that Zelensky was only charged with four of these murders, convicted of two, but that leaves possibly 12 more because we know there was 12 bodies found. Again, there was possibly 16 people he murdered, according to Weekly, who who knows how reliable he is, although he did lead police to the place and there was bodies there. So it sounds like he's reliable, at least to some extent. The fact that there isn't, and who knows how much is or isn't being done, um, obviously behind the scenes, we don't know, but it just feels again like those are those are potentially 12 more people, 12 more families who, again, have no answers. Who knows what their experiences have been thus far in terms of trying to deal with getting answers from the police. The police and their kind of response to Cindy Song's family is so heartbreaking and yeah um to me really trying to send a message which basically is like don't call us out and don't uh you know don't push us harder or we will not help you try to solve the death of your loved one which is horrifying um that was 20 years ago do i think we're further <sighs> along now i want to say yes i don't know that i can say yes um it's you know, it's just, again, it's heartbreaking, I think, is and infuriating are, are great words for this at the same time, because it's just these these poor people. And I agree with you. It is unfortunate that her family cleaned that house. Um, but why were they allowed in there? Crime scenes can be sealed for long periods of time. Um, yeah. But also, if what we believe is true, and again, we're all, we're speculating here, but I do feel like the, the potential that she was, was, um, taken on her way to the grocery store or on her way back uh i do feel like there's not gonna be anything to find in that apartment anyway agreed so that doesn't really prove anything for me um i hope that they go and dig in deceased stephen martin not the actor's prior uh or, or basement and that they dig in yep. selinsky's prior a uh, place he lived too because it feels to yep. me again like it's like that's your answer guys if you, you've heard it we've heard it on true crime and cocktails before which was dig under the house and then they did in in germany and guess what they found yep. evidence that apparently now is convicting or going to convict christian b in the murder of madeline mccann i think that if we dug under these places we'd find evidence in some cases whether it's cindy songs or not and then the last thing I wanted to say is shout out to Alicia for, for creating Alicia's Law. It sounds like she went through something absolutely horrific. And I think it is amazing that she uh, decided to turn that into something positive and uh, try and create change. It is not easy, but it is uh, attainable, which is proof because she did it. And I think that that's amazing. And the fact that tangible change is being made, a thousand arrests you know, which have been connected to the creation of Alicia's Law. That's amazing. Yeah. That's uh, so inspiring. And um, I hope that 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 continues to be helpful to law enforcement and get 
closure, help, and and answers for families that are touched, of course, by violent crimes um, with their loved ones because, again, it's just so awful. But those are my thoughts. Um, I think it's it's a real head-scratcher, and I'll say it one last time. Release the binders because we'd like to take a look. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know what kind of call logs we have. I want to know everything that they know that they haven't let out in the world. Um, for the love of all that is holy, check under Zelensky's previous house. Check everywhere in that yard. There's got to be something. Yes. I just, I, again, I mean, speculating that he's involved, but I just feel like somehow he's, <laughs> he's involved. But again, do I need to look into like an excavation for dummies? Because this is getting ridiculous at this point that I'm like, this needs to be done. And it's just not happening. Although who knows, maybe months from now we'll be like, oh, damn, <laughs> they did. And then we'll, uh, you'll make another TikTok and away we go. But the point is, just check if somebody did something bad. And suddenly you find dead bodies, a dozen dead bodies buried in their yard. Maybe look at every address they've ever lived at and at least penetrating sonar that shit. Like at least look and see if you can find something because there's no way it's his first time if he did it that many times. So again... But Just the, check his house. Check his house. But again, the fact that there was 12 bodies there and only he was only charged in four murders. Oh. I mean, I, I don't know. It creeps me out because, again, I can't think yeah. about it too deeply or I won't sleep for, for months because it's like, well, why wouldn't you? Why isn't there more? And what's the answer we keep coming back to? Again, I'm not going to say it out loud um, because I can't think about it. But anyway, nope. um, but yes, to your point. If someone has 12 bodies on one property and moved very shortly after uh, someone that there is at least some speculation that they could have killed, died, went missing, etc. Yeah. Went missing, I should say, because her body wasn't found. Um, go to that other house. You found 12 yes. bodies at his, at his more recent one. That to me is like a no brainer. But the, but the Stephen Martin one is too. I, I mean, again, I don't know. No. I don't know what it what it takes in in terms of getting warrants. The little that I do know, again, not a lawyer, uh, not involved in the legal system, but the little that I do know from yeah. the work that we've done for the past year, I think you can get a warrant based on less. So I don't know why that. Again, and when do I keep coming back to? It's like, well, and there's a reason why they don't want to look there. And that's I can't think about that. I can't think about that. Um, but I hope that that we hear that that has been done. I hope that uh, again, we, it, there's be answers for Cindy's song, so that they're they're the family can have those answers and some sort of of justice can be uh, served because it feels it's such a they're all so sad. I mean, all of it's obviously so sad. It's an understatement of the millennium, but it's just so sad. Again, I think this one probably because I see myself in her that I'm like I have been the, sure. the drunk girl rolling up home at four o'clock in the morning who's potentially gone back out to get a snack 
That's just yeah. such a, you know, ugh. Ugh. Well, listen. Yeah. Now, I know what you're thinking to your listeners. We're only at the two-hour mark. <laughs> That's not what true crime and cocktails does. They go on forever. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and Christy has a little something extra for us, which I cannot wait to find out about. So grab another drink, hit the can, and we're going to give you a little bit more on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking about the Unsolved Mystery Cindy song, but... I know that Christy's got a little something extra for us. What I you, do. What you got over there? Because I can't stop. She can't. That's <laughs> the problem. So, I told the dear listeners that we're going to be talking about the Cindy Song case. Right. I mentioned that it was featured on Unsolved Mysteries in Season 12, Episode 7. But what I failed to consider was the older Unsolved Mysteries episodes mention multiple cases per episode, and what I also failed to consider was that I might end up watching the entire episode and getting completely swept up in one of the other cases that was mentioned. So have I researched another case on top of that? Yes. Yes, I have. Uh, full disclosure, the case was solved thanks to an update oh on the on the episode uh but i started prying into the case and it is wild to me so in case any of our dis dear listeners who like me watched the full episode of unsolved mysteries and were shocked by one of the other cases mentioned or maybe for our dear listeners who didn't watch the episode but just want us to talk a little more true crime because i'm a giver may i present to you the case of Joanne Albanese. You may. Thank you. <laughs> Joanne Albanese is a 39-year-old divorcee living in Las Vegas with two teenage daughters. In April 1995, Joanne is introduced to fitness instructor John Edwards by a mutual friend. Joanne and John start seeing each other almost immediately, 
and were soon inseparable. But cracks started to show in John's facade, and suddenly he became incredibly possessive of Joanne, going so far as to refuse to let her go to the bathroom by herself. Oh, no. John started living off of Joanne's money and soon became prone to violent outbursts. So Joanne decided she deserved better than this relationship, so she told friends, as well as her own mother, that she planned to break up with John over dinner that night. And on August 19, 1995, Joanne was last seen leaving her workplace at 4.30 p.m. On August 20th, Joanne's daughters returned home from a trip with their father. When they arrived, they found it odd that Joanne wasn't around. They checked the house and noted that Joanne's purse was on her bed in the master bedroom and her jewelry was beside it. Joanne only ever took off her jewelry when she was about to have a shower. Then she would immediately put it all back on. So the purse was there and the jewelry, but both Joanne and John were nowhere to be found. Joanne's daughters called their father, who immediately called the police. But at first, Police assumed the couple had gone off on a spontaneous weekend away. But when Joanne didn't arrive at work on Monday, they knew something was wrong. Police noted John's blue truck parked outside of Joanne's house, and the license plate, when they ran it, wasn't actually registered to that vehicle or any vehicle, for that matter. On August 23rd, A hiker found Joanne's car in a remote area near Prescott, Arizona, 250 miles or 402 kilometers away. There were no bloodstains or bodily fluids found in the car. Police immediately start looking into John Edwards, and when they searched his home, they found a wallet that was duct taped closed. Inside the wallet was several pieces of ID matching John Edwards' picture, but all with the name John Patrick Addis from Alaska. Turns out that John Addis was his real name, and that not only did he used to be a cop, but John also was married with four children. No! John enrolled in college and worked as a lab technician. He married his first wife, Jody, and the couple planned to settle down in Michigan. However, John decided he didn't want to go to college anymore, so he moved the family to Sitka, Alaska, where he began his law enforcement career as the city dog catcher. John worked his way up the ranks and joined the Alaska State Troopers in 1974. And while most people who knew him thought John was a laid-back, fun-loving guy, they did find it odd that John was intent on moving his family to a tiny one-room cabin that had a dirt floor, no running water, and the only electricity came from a small generator. They hauled all the water that they needed and used an outhouse, no matter the temperature. In Alaska? No, thank you. Jody did the laundry with a washboard. Despite being a registered nurse, John did not want Jody to work, instead preferring her to be a stay-at-home mom for the children. 
When John first became a state trooper, there was no crime scene lab. So because of his brief college background, he developed a police protocol for homicide investigations. John continued to study, learning how to collect evidence such as hair and fiber samples, and studying blood spatter evidence. Jody said the abuse started small, with light shoving or a raised voice shortly after they moved to Alaska, but it quickly escalated to full verbal and physical assault. Not only was Jody not allowed to work, but she wasn't allowed to drive or have any friends of her own. After 11 years of marriage, shortly after their fourth child was born in 1982, Jody decided it was time to get out. Jody even alleges that once during a car ride, the couple got into an argument and Jody jumped from the moving vehicle just to get away from John. Oh my God. He chased her down and threw her back in the vehicle. Jody managed to get away from John and was granted a divorce. Jody was given full custody of the children, but John was given visitations during the school year and custody for up to six weeks each summer which feels extreme to me. Yeah. John then quickly met and married a woman named Sarah in December 1982. John then abruptly quit his, quit his job as a state trooper and told everyone he would be returning to medical school, going so far as to show off his acceptance letter from a med school in Florida. Five months later, Sarah divorced John and returned to Alaska. When asked about the months they spent in Florida, she said that John never went to medical school because the acceptance letter was fake. <gasps> Sarah also revealed that John would often disappear for weeks at a time and then refused to tell her where he'd been. John started to become obsessed with the idea of his children living with him and even suggested to Sarah that they kidnap his children. But Sarah refused to be any part of it. Months later, John starts dating a woman named Tony, and in true John fashion, he married her quickly in September 1985. The couple had one daughter together. John then told Tony he was going to kidnap his children from his first marriage. Not unlike Sarah, Tony wanted no part of him. <laughs> then John started to get possessive with Tony, wanting to know where she was every minute of every day. He checked her car's odometer to know how far Tony had driven that day. <sighs> John then started to become physically abusive towards Tony to the point where he once dragged her by her hair to pull her out of a chair and then choked Tony so hard her feet lifted off the ground. Tony filed for a restraining order and John filed for divorce. In August 1986, John demanded visitation with his children from his first marriage. Jody requested that John fly to Alaska to see them, but John refused, demanding that the children fly to Chicago. The couple went to court over it, and John got his way, and the children were put on a plane to Illinois. But when it came time for the children to return, there was no sign of them at the airport. And when Jody called, she learned not only had the kids not boarded the flight home, but they also didn't even have tickets purchased under any of their names. John and his children remained off the grid for eight months. Oh my God, those poor kids. 
before someone at a gym in Montana recognized John from a police flyer. John was immediately arrested, and the children were found locked in a cabin outside of town. They were unharmed and healthy. John was sentenced to four years in prison, with two and a half years suspended, so he only served 18 months. John left prison in 1988 and was allowed to move to Fresno, California, where he would be required to check in with a parole officer. While in Fresno, John worked fast, meeting a woman, moving in with her, getting engaged, stealing her money, and disappearing. Because the woman never filed charges against John, the California Parole Board decided to just close his case instead of issuing a warrant for him jumping parole. John then moved around the country, meeting women, proposing, stealing their money, and disappearing. At some point, he changed his name to John L. Edwards, a man John had met during his months living in Florida. In 1995, John landed a job as a fitness instructor at World's Gym in Las Vegas, which brings us back to the beginning of our story, where Joanne Albanese goes missing in August 1995, and her car was found in Arizona four days later. Cut to late 1996, a man who introduced himself as John Stone started to use Gold's Gym in Guadalajara, Mexico. Oh my god. John worked as a tennis instructor and taught English on the side. 46-year-old John started to date 25-year-old Laura Liliana Padilla, the daughter of an engineer. In March 1997, a segment about John in relation to Joanne Albanese aired on an episode of Geraldo. Someone called the show to say a man matching that description was seen at Gold's Gym in Guadalajara. So John and Laura left town. When Laura's family checked her apartment, her sister found a note from Laura that said she loved them all, but it was time for her to leave. Laura stated she and John were now engaged and that she promised to call them soon. Her family never heard from her again. On October 9, 1998, three years after John disappeared, a hunter discovered human remains one mile from where Joanne's car had been abandoned. The remains were identified as Joanne Albanese. John was charged in absentia with first-degree kidnapping and murder, but he managed to elude authorities for 11 years. Wow! Yeah, the discovery of Joanne's remains put John on the FBI's list of top 10 most wanted in America. The show America's Most Wanted aired a story about John and Joanne eight times between November 1998 and May 2005. Sometime in 1997, John and Laura, who were now legally married, moved around Mexico with John assuming the name J. Charles Peterson. He worked odd jobs, including as a tutor to the sons of a police chief. He tutored them in English. Mm. John and Laura had two children together. Neighbors felt that John seemed very controlling of Laura. And on October 18th, 2006, the neighbors realized they hadn't seen John in the family in several days. When they went to check on the family, they noticed a horrible smell and called the police. When authorities arrived, they found Laura and her two children 
dead. Oh, God. An autopsy ruled their cause of death due to carbon monoxide poisoning. From what I can tell, the first child, Etan, was born around 1997-98, while their second child, Ichel, was born around 2001. So at the time of their deaths, those poor kids would have been eight and five. And Laura was only 34. Ugh. Weeks after their bodies were discovered, a maid at a hotel in Guatemala City, Guatemala, found John's body in one of the rooms. A local coroner ruled that John had died of a heart attack. That piece of shit was 56. Ugh. Reporting again for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm still Christy Oxborough. And she's still angry, and so am I. Um, Wow. You know what's funny? (laughs) As you were telling me about, uh, talking about this, this is very similar to another case, and it's not this one. And I'm not, (laughs) this is a terrible story, but I'll try and figure out which one it is. I don't think that I will. It was on my, like, loop of Dateline mysteries. Sure. But the MO is so, so similar. And again, it's not, it's definitely not the same guy. Definitely not. Mm. But that's what's so sad to me is that it feels like it's such a commonality. And the other thing that struck me as you were telling me all of this is I just started thinking of the Widower episode that we did. Yep. Um, also Las Vegas. If you haven't listened to that episode of the show, get on it. Um, again, another guy, multiple wives, multiple, you know, taking money, like all of the above. It just felt so similar to me. I think the thing that's tough here is that he had two wives saying, now I don't know how much they said in the moment at the time, but like saying, I want to kidnap my children. Like, and then he did. (laughs) It's like, I don't know how much they told the police. I feel like because both of them went through the process of getting divorced, that would have had to have gotten brought up in those cases. You would think so, and especially in the one where she had a child. Yes, I think. And it was going to be, I'm making it so you don't get custody of this child. Exactly. And that is something, again, not to go back to Gacy, but it always does. Um <laughs> The lack of communication and sharing of information between states is wild. Now, again, it doesn't yeah. it's not as much now, but this was still in the 90s and um, 2000, early 2000s. And uh, well, no, the, the, yeah, because she was with he was with Sarah. He got married in 1982. So 80s, 90s, it was still there was breakdowns in communication happening. I think now that things are electronic it's a little bit easier, although I'm also hearing my own words and what I'm hearing in my own head is power case from the Bruce MacArthur episode, <laughs> which again, if you haven't listened to that one, go and give it a listen. Um, and that was in the same city. They weren't sharing information, so I should yeah. bite my tongue. But my point is, is that uh, it's just wild to me how information can fall through the cracks. Again, the fact that he was able to basically skip parole and then nothing happened. Like, what a tragedy and a half. Yeah. The other thing I thought of, of course, with the fake letter to medical school, I was like, this is Shades of Dr. Death, um, which again, give Joshua Jackson all the awards. <laughs> give him his Golden Globe. Give him his Emmy. Yep. He deserves it. A flawless performance. Really good. I guess that was the last pleasure viewing I did, but anyway. Um... <laughs> Thank you once again for that. Your 
You're very welcome. It's just so wild to me that he kidnapped his children, kept them off the grid in this cabin. Now, granted, I understand that they were, you know, well taken care of. I'm going to say physically. But think of the emotional damage that that did. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, remember the time when we were kids and uh, dad took us and put us in a cabin for eight months? And wouldn't let us go home to see mom and probably was telling them the whole time, like, oh, your mom doesn't want to be with you or your mom's crazy. Like, I'm sure he was spinning some story. Right. Sure. Because the kids at that point also were like not toddlers. Like they I'm sure were old enough to like be like, what is happening? Why is this happening? Yes. Oh, those poor kids. That is awful. Um, you'll also love this. My first note I took, Swept Away. Is that, was that a song that John Stamos song, sung in his band on Full House? Swept Away. I have been swept away. Am I crazy? Maybe. Damn it! <laughs> I mean, it's possible. The only, like, Jesse and the Rippers hits that come to mind is forever um forever oh the video i mean <laughs> how long forever the first one yeah. remember? oh god yes when because he's wearing like harem pants or whatever we yes. call them and uh they went for a whole other vibe and then he was like no 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 just my kids mm-hmm. um oh and that they had like they had like an upbeat one, didn't they? I think so. I'm gonna have to find this song. I did a quick Google. Nothing's coming up. "Swept Away" is a song that is in my brain. It's from something. I don't know. It's I, for sure an '80s TV show or movie. Hopefully, some one of our listeners is screaming it uh, as they're listening. And if you sure. are, please message and let me know. I'd like the answer because that's uh, a question that I don't know the answer to. Um. My final thought on this case is the two things. One, I love that he quit college, start, started as a dog catcher, and worked his way up to state trooper. That feels like a journey that has some flaws. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and yep. that's no shade to, quote, dog catchers, um, although I don't know that we use that term anymore. That's no shade to that. But I just feel like uh, some schooling. I feel like some going to a police academy might be helpful, not just... Working your way I'd up. Like, I'd like to think you don't just show up to being a trooper and they're like, well, here's your gun. <laughs> or that you show up. Yep. The other side of it, that you show up to uh, be a dog catcher and it's like, and here's your gun. And you're like, but I, what? Like that to me, there's, to me, it doesn't make sense that they're just like, well, in this police force, you start at the ground and work your way up. And it's like. Yeah, but I also don't think that if I was like, ah, I want to be a journalist, they'd be like, well, you got to start at the ground up, you deliver the papers, work hard enough, and then you can write in them. And it's like, okay, shouldn't I have <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, some sort I started of with I started with a paper route, and now I'm I'm the editor. It just feels, yeah, yeah. It feels like it's there's some, some skips, so, some steps that have been skipped. Yeah, but here's the other the the, the last thought that I wanted to say. Uh, to, again, two. I said it was two things before. Uh, now it's two, so I guess it was three. Don't come for me. Um, I feel like the specifics here are fascinating 
if I yeah. put on my psychologist hat, which won't fit over Thank my cans. <laughs> yep. The Your idea, cast cans. Thank you very much. My cast, my cast cans. The idea that this man was like, we didn't have a crime lab, so I just started doing it on my own, collecting samples and whatever. And then was like, oh, I'm going to go to med school, look at my acceptance letter. I'm like, narcissist, narcissist, narcissist. This is a narcissistic personality disorder for sure, which again, Dr. Death, I feel like, is under that umbrella too, where it's somebody who really believes that they're smarter than everybody and really believes that they're not going to get caught. And this man was making those choices, kidnapping your children, you know, murdering people and then fleeing the country. Like, this is somebody who again, thinks he's above the law. Because guess what? Yeah. He was. For 11 years, he was on the run at one point, right? Yeah. Um, which is scary because, again, uh, I think when we think about those kinds of uh, diagnoses or whatever you want to label them of people, um, also it should be noted that they often do go along with extremely high intellect. So this strikes me as somebody who was very, very smart. The fact that he, again, was able to fool so many people that's a proof of his charisma his charm which is another high up there trait but the idea that he would move them into a one-room cabin this family in alaska that has no running water and the outhouse this is the part of his psyche that is very interesting to me because all of the rest of it and the abuse even too i'm which is horrific and um you know i think again Statistically speaking, we know what the numbers of domestic partner, you know, intimate partner violence are. And I feel like those things need to be taken more seriously, obviously, because then you hear about cases like this where it starts one way and look what ends up happening. Um, But that, again, it's like it can kind of still and I'm not in any way suggesting that people who are diagnosed narcissists are abusive or going to commit murders. I'm not. But that's not the part of this, the part of him that is fascinating to me. It's wanting to put them in this place that is so hard to live. And I understand that he wanted to control these women to the point that it's like, I'm looking at your odometer. I'm going to the bathroom with you. Like, these are the traits. Again, this is obviously somebody who's, you know, extremely abusive, extremely emotionally, uh, mentally abusive without question. And then, of course, was physically as well. But I'm like, what is that part of it? Is it just that it's like, I need to make your life, like I need to make all of your existences, both she and the children, but I guess mostly her because she would have to care for the children in that environment. I want to make your life as difficult as possible because then you have to rely on me for absolutely everything, like water. I mean, if that's the case... We're talking about such a high level here, in my opinion. I I think it is a absolute, it's a tragedy either, either way, don't get me wrong, but I think it is an absolute tragedy that this man did not get stopped sooner. And I think it is an absolute tragedy that he was allowed the visitation with those children that he was granted. I think that that is a huge yes. flaw in the system. Oh, if, if yeah. If they had heard the way that he was making that family live, and and the way that he was treating his his wife at the time, um, and just what that level of abuse really was, and they still felt it was appropriate to let them to let him have 
visitation with those children in another state that was a huge flood. I mean, again, it was proof. He, he kidnapped them the one time they let him. To yeah. me, again, this is when we start to get into like legislation talks and that it's like, I think we got to, we there's got to be, I'm inspired by Alicia's law because I think that change has got to be made because there was just screaming red flags with this guy. And it is yeah. truly horrific that he was able to continue and do all of the things that he did and affect all of the lives that he did and take all of the lives that he did, including not only two of his wives, but also two of his children. That was yeah. all avoidable. It was all avoidable if, if, in my opinion, if courts had intervened in, be, you know, stronger ways sooner. Could they have kept him in prison forever? No. Is it possible that he still could have committed all these crimes? Yes, but it just feels like there was some huge opportunities missed here from like a psychological evaluation standpoint. There is no reason. And again, we don't know. I don't know the inner workings, but I just feel like any psych evaluation of this person is going to come back with like, we got some things to talk about, judge. <laughs> we can't. Yeah. We can't give this guy access to his children unsupervised. You know what I'm saying? Oh, 100 percent. Oh, gosh. I mean, again, it's just the statistics don't lie. And the MO is always similar um, or often similar when you hear so many of these cases. And uh, yeah. it's it's exhausting. It's heartbreaking and it's enraging, to quote Christy. Back to her. Christy Oxborough, thank you so much for your work on this episode of the show. I think it was fabulous. It was so much variety. This was like a variety show <laughs> of true crime. I mean, you did give them a musical number. Swept, swept away. away. <laughs> I, I it's gonna kill me into life, and it's gonna be something so obscure. I I thought it was Full House, but I mean, I'm gonna find you it. could be right. You could be. I don't know. Mm, I've been swept away. I, I I mean, I could hear it in my head. I can't wait to find it. I can't wait to find it. My um, dream is that it's um ah, oh, what was that show called? California something. California dreams. That is the dream is that it's going to turn out to be California dreams because I was so hard into Saved by the Bell. Yes. That when it ended, I was devastated. It might have been Saved by the Bell now that I'm thinking about it. And California dreams came in and picked up my broken heart and cradled it. I mean, mostly Jake did that in his leather coat, but that's not that's not the point. He was the badass opposite of preppy that I was I was turning into a new lady. Wow. I, you switched I, to I loved, Slater. I loved that show so hard. So hard. You know what? I, I only ever watched a few episodes, but it could have also been California Dreams. Look, I'm going to get into a deep dive, Google. I can't do it right now because we got to wrap this thing up. But listen, um, well, we thank you. I thank you on behalf of the people and on behalf of me, of, of myself. Thank you for your work. You did a great job as always. You are, as always, too kind. I just speak the truth. It's what I do. Mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't already, give us a follow on Instagram, and uh, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. And as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, if you want more content, go to patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails, where we have bonus episodes, live three-hour monthly Q&As. Uh, you can take part in the monthly poll to determine one episode that we cover on this regular stream of the podcast per month. 
we have a lot of fun over there, very genuinely. It's just such a joy, and uh, it's fun to get to connect with everybody uh, on that platform. So we welcome you if you're welcome, or if you're interested, not if you're welcome. Of course you're welcome. That's not the point. <laughs> I've derailed. Um, uh, Christy, do you want to tell the people about the next episode of the show? I think this should be a you thing, because this is, is it weird to call it your baby? This was your, this has been one that have, has been your idea for a while. So. Yes, it has. Uh, you're right. It should be me. Yeah. On the next episode of True Crime and Cocktails. I go back to Amy Winehouse. Uh, for those who don't know. Uh, or haven't followed along, uh, Amy Winehouse, of course, is the final in the list of our OG blanket gals. Um, If you go to the merch store, we have actual blankets, T-shirts, hoodies, all of the above, um, where we list all of the episodes where we talked about wanting to wrap up uh, someone, a female celebrity that society failed. So, of course, Britney Spears, Marilyn Monroe, Anna Nicole Smith, China, and... At the end of the China episode that I did, I found out that Amy Winehouse loved China. Didn't know her, but loved her. And so desperately wanted to go to this WWE-themed restaurant um, to meet China, to try and meet China. And that's when I, and then in the episode I said, Amy Winehouse, that's another one I want to wrap in a blanket. And so when I created the merch, I put her on there because I was like, I'm going to do her in an episode. And guess what, dear listeners? It's next week. So we're going to go deep into the story of Amy, and I've been deep in the research already, and I'm going to tell you something. It's so interesting, because China was similar, where there's no real true crime element. But but there is in the sense of the shit that's done to these women. <laughs> mm. In the metaphorical sense, but then also in the literal sense, is so mm. egregious um, that I'm honored to get to tell her story. Uh, there's a lot of documentaries, uh, there's a lot of books, uh, we're going to get into all that too, uh, but I'm going to present the most unbiased information that I can, and I'm obviously excited about it because I've talked about it for about four minutes now. So tune in next week for Amy Winehouse. Uh, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Dave Grohl. He's also referenced in the Amy Winehouse episode. I had to tell you, I'm too excited. <laughs> Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.